How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a fresh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Should we just start with like the theme song from Terminator? I know. I was I don't think we've ever discussed Arnold or the Terminator without Todd at some point doing that. That. That song, that song. It's, a good, it's good it gets in your head i've been listening to it today it's uh it's catchy i've been listening to the austrian death machine version oh i don't know what that is is that just arnold yelling into a microphone it, it is but it's also <laughs> it's like a heavy metal it's the heavy metal version so it's you know more guitars and you know heavier drums and it, it's badass it's pretty cool honestly <laughs> where to put this in the notes so i'll just say it now uh on, on our other terminator episode i mentioned how there was the uh ending filmed where it shows the folks in cyberdyne collecting the chip and the arm and stuff. yeah in the commentary cameron brings it back up and i don't know why i cannot find footage of this but he says it existed but he had to remove it because quote it was terribly acted frankly <laughs> <laughs> It was just, and it wasn't any of the regular players, I guess, from the movie. It was yeah, just been I guess like so. some, some, That's funny. Some day, <laughs> that, that was some day players. Like, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's never, maybe that's why it's never been released as like a deleted scene or anything like that. Yeah. Hey, man, so. look, look what I found in this, too. Oh, wow. It's Bill Whoa. Paxton in that scene, too. <laughs> it does sound like Bill Paxton. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to start this episode so that maybe one day it ends. Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We're just a few friends that love movies and love talking about them. And we read and write about them a lot and all of that stuff. So that's what we're doing here with. with and we watch them, too. We, wa- we, we did watch them, too. We didn't just. Yeah. Anyway, that's who we are. That's what we do. Hi, I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. Hey, I'm Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis, and thank you for joining us for our discussion of one of the greatest action films of all time, one of the greatest sequels of all time, with one of the biggest stars of all time. Now, this might sound like easy money, but as we get into it, you'll see how this production came about through financial failings, fisticuffs, and Arnie approving the script on a jet plane in this fourth installment of our examination of the career of James Cameron, the man of tomorrow. Well, I for one am happy that we decided to start introing this way. We're I am too, to honestly. Up these things. <laughs> I uh, and and my my disgust at the beginning, or it wasn't disgust that I said so that one day 
this this will end. It's just that I never knew how long a podcast could be until we started talking about James Cameron movies. <laughs> <laughs> never knew how long a movie could be until we started watching James Cameron movies. There you go. Right. Yeah, that guy it. holds nothing uh, back. You just wait till we get to Titanic and the extended edition of Avatar. Oh, oh, oh God. <laughs> All right. So after the abyss on our last episode, after the abyss failed to meet box office expectations, James Cameron, he figured he'd better move on to his next project right away. He wanted to kind of, uh, he didn't want to lose any of the momentum that he'd built up. He wanted to start working on something before people decided that maybe he shouldn't be given that much money again. (laughs) But, and then around Christmas of 1989, this is about four months after the abyss had been released in theaters. Cameron received a call from a guy named uh, Mario Kasser and a guy named Andrew Vajna, the heads of Carol Co. Pictures. I want uh, you to know that's not how I originally read that name. Carol <laughs> <laughs> uh, Co. was an independent production company that had been founded back in 1976, but they had first uh, truly come into success in 1982 with the release of First Blood, the first Rambo movie. Uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, the success of First Blood <laughs> and its sequel, which, uh, as we've mentioned before, was co-written by James Cameron, uh, sort of. <laughs> they were so instrumental to Carol Coe's success that they focused their entire output after that on big-budget action films with major stars like Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Red Heat, for instance, uh, starring Schwarzenegger, was released in the summer of 1988, uh, just a few weeks after Rambo 3, which they also produced. And then they would also produce uh, Paul Verhoeven's uh, Total Recall in 1990. Nice. So they were kind of in the Arnold Schwarzenegger business. And he was he was kind of friends with these guys at this point. Kasser and Vajna, they had ambitions to become big players in Hollywood, and they were spending money accordingly. Uh, they were, they were, I wouldn't say hemorrhaging money because their money, their, their movies were making a lot of, a lot of money in returns, but they were spending a lot to get them made and a lot to establish these big stars in their films. And they had bought the rights to the Terminator for about $10 million. Uh, and then they asked James Cameron to write and direct a sequel. So there had been some discussion of a Terminator sequel in the past. Uh, Schwarzenegger was a lot more enthusiastic about the idea than Cameron uh, because Cameron thought that he would said all that he wanted to say with the original film. But one of the main reasons that a sequel never actually moved forward is because Cameron and Schwarzenegger refused to work with Hemdale. Remember Hemdale Productions, who produced the first film, uh, they owned the rights to the film or they own part of the rights. Uh, John Daly, Hemdale's co-founder, had tried to alter the ending of the Terminator against Cameron's wishes and the two almost physically came to blows over it. Like they almost got in a fist fight over over that. Uh, Cameron, yeah. Uh, but a sequel couldn't happen without Hemdale's approval because 50% of the rights to the Terminator had been surrendered to Hemdale in order to get the movie made. That was part of the deal that they made on that film. Uh, the other half was owned by Gail and Hurd, who you may remember had purchased the rights to the Terminator from Cameron for a dollar. By 1990, Cameron, Schwarzenegger, Hurd, and Stan Winston were actually suing Hemdale for, for unpaid profits from that film. So it wasn't a great relationship. Nothing brings people together like a fight over money. Yeah, a lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> but what they didn't know is that Hemdale was having some financial difficulties by the early 90s. Uh, I won't get into uh, a lot of details on it. I did look it up, but it's it's kind of boring. Uh, a lot of it involves HBO, like rights uh, for movies going to HBO, a lot of video rights, like VHS releases and things like that. Um, it's, it's all very complicated and lawyery and, and boring. Regardless, they were struggling. It was actually Schwarzenegger who persuaded 
Cassar and Vajna to purchase the rights to the Terminator after paying him their $10 million. And they paid her an additional $5 million for her half of the rights, uh, plus incidental costs. Carol Co. spent about $17 million after all that to secure the rights to the film before any development had even begun. Uh, $17 million. You get, remember, um, Aliens, which was a pretty big budget for its time, this was only half a decade earlier, cost $18 million. Oh, wow. All in all. And they, they've already spent $17 million on the Terminator on or, or to get the rights to the Terminator before they've even got a script or even a director. You know, James Cameron hasn't signed on at this point. You know, <laughs> so they're already $17 million in the hole. So, Gary, I, I uh, on our last episode on The Abyss, towards the end, you read a quote from James Cameron yeah, about was... his thoughts on doing a sequel to one of his own films. Would you mind reading that quote again? Yeah, it's from uh, Conversations with the Filmmaker series. He basically was being asked about directing Blade Runner 2, which was the rumor at the time, uh, right after Aliens. And he said, I have nothing to do with Blade Runner 2. I wouldn't be interested. And I don't want to go around cleaning up after Ridley Scott for the rest of my life, nor will I sequelize my own films. So he he sounded pretty (laughs) adamant about it at the time. Well, what happened was uh, Kasser met with Cameron, and he explained that this movie's going to go forward with or without him. They had just invested $17 million in it. They're going to find somebody to direct this movie, whether or not it's James Cameron. Uh, well, as it turns out, Cameron was willing to go back on his word about doing a sequel to one of his own films uh, for a price. Uh, he later said, they offered me a lot of money. I can be bought. His price tag, at least at that time, was uh, about $6 million. So they're like, hey, hey, James, we're going to do, we want, we're going to do this movie. We want you to write and direct it. We will pay you $6 million to do it. To which he said, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And this probably doesn't stand for him now, but I can guarantee you there is very little, nay, nothing I wouldn't do for $6 million. (laughs) (laughs) $6 million to Cameron now is chump change. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, because he's he's probably worth a billion or close to it. That's, worth, bo- that's body paint budget, yeah. man. He's probably <laughs> legitimately probably worth half a billion dollars, you know, at, at this point. But at the time, you know, he was a big deal, but he wasn't that big a deal. And, and, and directors weren't getting paid the way some of them are now. So for Arnold, they needed Arnold to do this as well. And again, he was friends with these guys. But they gave him, to persuade him to do it, they gave him, gifted him a $12 million Gulfstream jet to sign on. That was his signing bonus for this, a personal jet. Uh, just so, for yeah. the record, according to the Google machine, uh, 700 million estimated, right? Is now. what he's worth? Yeah. So three quarters of a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, so, Carol Co. at the time had an existing distribution deal with TriStar Pictures uh, for a set percentage of the budget, about $4 million. And TriStar wanted the film to be ready for release on Memorial Day 1991. And the film went forward with an estimated cost of about $60 million. Uh, of course, we this is a James Cameron movie, so we know that he's not going to hit that budget or that release date. Uh, but the investors weren't too mad about it because the resulting film at the time of its release would become the third highest grossing movie of all time. Uh, we're talking, obviously, we haven't said the name of the movie yet, but we're talking, of course, about Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Same make. These were taken at the West Highland Police Station, 1984. You were there. Same model. These were taken today. 
You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. Once, he was programmed to destroy the future. You don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now, his mission... Get down! ...is to protect it. Come with me if you want to live. You're really real. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy... He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. ...is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. You just can't go around killing people. Why? If you thought you had seen it all, look again. Stay down! Go! Now! We gotta stick together! Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time, he's back. For good. Trust me. Now, we at Cinema Shock understand that this might be your first time listening to us. Again, welcome. But also, be warned, if you, for some reason, have not seen Terminator 2, Judgment Day, we're going to talk about it at length in great detail. So, Spoilers abound. You have been warned. Yes. Also, just go watch Terminator 2. It's awesome. Yeah. It's a really great movie. <laughs> uh, and if you're but, thinking, like, I didn't see the first one, I can't watch the second one, you totally can. It's fine. Yeah, but also see the first one because it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then go listen to our episode on that one. I happen to like the first one a lot. So, hey, I, the first I, one's amazing. It's, I mean, they're both, they're both outstanding films. Yeah. A lot of fun. Cameron is not one to rest on his laurels, even between developing films. And in the years between The Abyss and Terminator 2, uh, his personal and professional life had continued to evolve. Uh, on the professional side of things, in early 1990, he'd founded his own production company, Lightstorm Entertainment. Uh, Lightstorm, named after the effect of like uh, when the Terminator arrives in the first film, the lightning and everything. Oh, yeah. That, that's your Lightstorm. So that's where the name of Lightstorm Entertainment comes from. And Lightstorm Entertainment would go on to produce not only his own films, but other films that he was involved with, either as a as a writer or an executive producer. And on the personal side of things, he had found a new love in his life. Uh, oh. So before production began on The Abyss, we talked a little bit about this in our Abyss episode. Uh, he and Gail Ann Hurd, his wife at the time, they were separating. Uh, and during that time, during that separation, he began dating Catherine Bigelow. So Bigelow is also a director. She has gone on to helm award-winning films like The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, but her first film was a movie called The Loveless. It was released in 1981. It was co-directed by Monty Montgomery. Do you guys know who Monty Montgomery is? So he is a producer mostly. He doesn't really direct. But if you've ever seen Mulholland Drive, have you guys seen Mulholland Drive? Oh, yeah. Yeah, David Lynch. He's the cowboy. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you've seen Mulholland Drive, then you know. I haven't who, seen Mulholland Drive. Oh, man, you just wait till we do a David Lynch. I was about to say, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, we're, we're definitely going to do a David it's, Lynch. It's on the docket. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, But he, if you've seen Mulholland Drive, you know who the cowboy is. And Monty Montgomery is the cowboy. So The Loveless uh, was co-directed by Monty Montgomery. It featured Willem Dafoe in his first starring role. Uh, then her second feature, which was her first directed as a solo project, was the vampire western hybrid Near Dark which starred several Cameron regulars, including Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, and Jeanette Goldstein. If you haven't seen Near Dark, I 
cannot recommend it highly enough. I don't, it's one of my favorite like vampire movies of all time. It's really nice, really good, really good stuff. So while Cameron was in South Carolina shooting The Abyss, Bigelow was in New York directing her next film, which was the Jamie Lee Curtis movie Blue Steel, where Jamie Lee Curtis plays a cop. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember it being pretty good. Uh, But they would fly to see each other on the weekends. And then after The Abyss was released, the couple ended up getting married. So just as he had worked with her professionally, he and Bigelow had a working relationship as well, although the roles were kind of reversed uh, with Cameron producing and Bigelow directing. Uh, The first Bigelow film that he produced was a little script that Bigelow had come across called Johnny Utah. Uh, The script was apparently not really great, uh, but it had a lot of promise. And Cameron helped Bigelow to rewrite it uh, as much as he could because he's prepping Terminator 2 actually at the same time. Uh, But he's helping her to kind of rewrite it to make it a little more darker, a little more psychological. Uh, And I'm sure as most of our listeners probably know, the script would eventually become Point Break, uh, effectively launching Bigelow's career as an action movie director and turning Keanu Reeves into a star. I mean, he had already done Bill and Ted at this point, but Point Break's the one that that made him like a bankable movie star. Yeah, the original script was by a guy named Peter Liff, but Bigelow really dug it and Cameron agreed to executive produce it for because men will do anything for love or carnal (laughs) pleasures i suppose Uh, i was digging into this just because i love that movie i didn't even know this was a thing until last episode so she'd actually had stuff well in hand up until about the principal production was about to start she just was never happy with the script so cameron offered to team up with her and rewrite it because men will do anything for love or anyway. Uh, <laughs> I just I just stay on it for a minute because it's worth noting how this is the second time brother did this. Like remember aliens and Rambo mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. So just know while Cameron and Wisher are going to be working on T2, Cameron is also rewriting Point Break for Bigelow. Which so, he's uncredited on, I believe. I don't yeah, know. so he I, I found a little bit of an interview with him when he talks about it. He got back down to a serious formula that he had that we talked about in like Aliens. Yeah. No sleep, excessive coffee. Sounds he's like careful. me um, when I'm working on notes for this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he's careful to not take too much credit, though, in anything from, from Bigelow, which I think people were trying to do in interviews afterwards were like trying to connect it to him too much. I found a quote from him from a convention in 1991 where somebody asked him about it. He said, quote, I was executive producer of Point Break. I did a considerable amount of writing on the shooting draft of the script with Catherine. And even though we haven't received credit, which is an issue I still have with the Writers Guild, she basically 100% is responsible for the final film from that point on. I made a few phone calls here and there, but I was kind of busy myself. Anyway, I just thought this was a good example of uh, what a great workhorse this guy is. Uh, but apparently, if you watch Point Break with this knowledge now, which I haven't seen since I know this, uh, you could pick up on the vibe for yeah. sure. And especially Cameron's love for like getting to a climax and you think that's it. And then he just does a whole nother thing yeah. after that, which is kind of like Justin's mom, but you got to pay extra. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, and also, I love getting into the 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 heart of these directors. Sometimes I, I think that was fun. Like like Shane Black, I like tried to make the whole thing about him as a person. Yeah. But you don't find like as much about that with Cameron. And so like I know that like people probably hear us talking about these wives are more curious about it. And we've kind of mentioned this before, but you know because he was with Heard, uh, he's with he was with the girl before Heard who is the inspiration for Sarah Connor. Then he's with Catherine Bigelow. Like right after this, he'll end up divorcing Catherine Bigelow and moving in with Linda Hamilton. Just a bunch of really tough women, though. The only thing I can find him explaining any of this is that he's, he does say at one point, he picks women who don't need him. 
and eventually they realize it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does he does have a type. I mean, if you've ever seen Catherine Bigelow, she's six feet tall. She's she's gorgeous. She looks she looks like she would also kick your ass if you got out of line. Like he's very <laughs> much got a type. <laughs> he it, I mean, it's the type of women that he writes. It's Ellen Ripley, it's Sarah Connor. Like the type of women that he writes in his action movies are the type of women that he seems to be attracted to in real life. Nice. You know? Yeah. So. so he just has a string of them, and I guess eventually they get sick of him. His brother, like in some stuff you'll read from him mike cameron he'll he says he's he's tough and yeah. he's especially tough on the people he cares about the most so it eventually yeah. just you know i, I guess say, unless you're mike cameron and you're stuck with him because blood uh <laughs> then, you know whatever <laughs> well Susie amos who's his currently her current wife they, they've been married for like over 20 years now i think so i think he finally has settled down a little bit. He's also, I wouldn't say he's toned himself down a little bit. He, he is more aware of his behavior when he was younger, like being kind of a dick on set. And he's, he's, he, he tries to be, I guess, nicer now, but he's still, I mean, I, I was reading interviews with him this week where he was talking about uh, people bitching about the length of avatar uh, you know, and he's like, listen, my kids watch seven fucking episodes of Stranger Things in a row. If you can sit down and watch like seven or eight episodes of a Netflix show in a row, you can watch a three hour movie. It's fine. He's like, sometimes people are worried about getting having to get up and go pee. He's like, who cares? Get up and go pee. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Reading through 100 interviews with him, too. I found this one quote that I wasn't sure where to use it, but this is perfect timing, too. He says, uh, people ask me all the time how I become a film director or how to become a film director. And I tell them, if you have to ask somebody like me how to be a film director, you're not going to do it. Yeah. If that pisses you off and then you go out and say, I want to fucking show Jim Cameron, I'm going to be a director. And that gives you the actual true grit you need to be or need to have in order to actually go through with it. And you become a film director, then you better send me a bottle of champagne and thank me. <laughs> yeah. He talked about that a little bit on his masterclass where he's like, what does it take to become a film director? Pick up a camera and shoot something there. You're a director. You know, that, that it's just like, you just got to get out there and do it. I mean, that's, that's what he that's does. Similar, a- that's similar to advice I got about working in the comic book industry yeah, and just, doing stand up do comedy. It. Like <laughs> if you want to do stand up comedy, there's your stage, go up there. Tell I mean, hell, joke. that's how we started this podcast. Like me yeah. and Gary were talking about it forever. Then one day I'm just like, let's just fucking do it. Let's just record something. And we did. And it was probably terrible, but we eventually figured it out. Sort <laughs> of. Sort of. I mean, we're still figuring it out, but we're better than we were like six years ago or seven years ago or whatever the hell that was. I used to read Brian Michael Bendis, the, the comic writer, uh, Q&As, and then we'll shut up about this. But uh, I used to read his stuff all the time and he would constantly get those questions. Uh, like, how do I become a writer? His answer was always, I don't know, man. Writer's right. That's just what you do. This is what you do. Everyone has a different process, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of writing, though, uh, so Cameron's got a scheduled release date in place. That gives him about six or seven weeks to write a sequel to The Terminator. Uh, Luckily, he already had an idea, though. So after signing on to the project, his first thought was of a concept that he had actually envisioned for the original. So when he was first conceiving The Terminator, his original outline He had two Terminators being sent from the future. The first one, which was basically the the T-800 model that Schwarzenegger plays, gets dispatched by Kyle Reese about halfway through the story. So following that, the machines in the future reluctantly send a second Terminator. The second Terminator was one that was, it was so powerful that even the machines were kind of scared to send it, but they kind of did it as like a, uh, 
you know, last it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the second Terminator <laughs> was made of liquid metal and couldn't be destroyed by any conventional weapon. So Cameron, you know, he's, he's developing the Terminator and he's trying to think of a way to depict the liquid metal Terminator using early 1980s technology. He thought claymation might be the answer, but he wasn't really sure. He wasn't sure if that would, if he could really pull it off. And in the end, he decided that he'd probably written too much story anyway, uh, which is probably the only time in his career that Cameron had that thought. (laughs) (laughs) He figured funding would also be difficult with the ambitious script that he had written. So he cut the story down to be just about the T-800, which turned the film into less of a big effects picture and more of a traditional shoot 'em up and thus an easier sell to potential financiers. But he never forgot about that idea he had about this liquid metal man. So after the pioneering CGI that was used to create the, uh, the water tentacle in the abyss, he now knew that this, this might be possible. So one thing that we have not really touched on with Cameron is that uh, despite the fact that he grew up writing short sci-fi stories, he never really seemed to enjoy the process of screenwriting. Uh, he just doesn't like it. He, he, he likes coming up with stories. I think he just doesn't like the idea of sitting down at a typewriter and, and hammering it out in, you know, screenplay format and, yeah. and all that. It's incredibly tedious. Like, yeah. The, the creation part is hard enough then to actually get it into the correct format is yeah. just nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> so when he signed on to do Terminator 2, he enlisted the help of this friend, Bill Wisher. Now, you may remember, Wisher actually helped Cameron write several, several scenes in the original Terminator, although he doesn't receive any screen credit. Uh, but he he did write some pretty integral scenes, like the tech noir scene was his, like a, a few really good scenes in that were written by Bill Wisher. Yeah, um, we we mentioned very briefly in the Terminator episode, but yeah, Wisher Wisher's one of Cameron's best friends since like 1972. Uh, they're still yeah, friends. they grew up together in Brea. Yeah, yeah, they went to well, high school he, together, I think, or college. Yeah, well, to hear him describe it, it was basically like a year. Uh, Cameron was out of high school a year, and he was dating a girl uh, that was friends with Wisher, and she thought that well, this was actually Sharon Williams, uh, Cameron's first wife. He was dating her. And she was friends with Wisher, and she thought they'd get along because they were both, quote, into movies, science fiction, and all that stuff. Nerds. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is that Sharon Williams, who was the inspiration for Sarah Connor. Again. Right. Um, I actually saw some there. He's got that book, Tech Noir, The Art of James Cameron. And he had drawn some pictures of her with some notes about Sarah Connor and stuff. It was uh, so you can kind of see him working her out as that thing. But hmm, uh, just kind of cool. But um, anyway, but th- yeah, this guy, he they're still friends. He, he went to the bottom of the Atlantic with him on the expedition Bismarck, which is one of his deep sea yeah. things that yeah. got filmed. Anyway, Wisher, as far as I could find in the original, he was responsible for most scenes involving Sarah Connor and the LAPD story arc stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, um, the, the assault on the police station. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's actually in all the movies for what it's worth too. He's in Xenogenesis as Raj, the main dude in the OG Terminator. He's the cop that shows yeah. up at the tech noir shootout that Arnold smacks his face into the window and steals well, the car. Well, he had started his career. You know, he, he's the star of Xenogenesis. Uh, he's the main character in that. And he had started his career wanting to be an actor, not, not to be a writer. That was not his ambition. Yeah. And then T2, uh, he's actually in there even by accident because like some dude missed his flight or something. But he's the dude in the mall taking pics of Arnold when he's getting up from being thrown through the window. But yeah, he says he was just uh, hanging out, got a call from Jim Cameron. And Cameron says, good news, man. We're doing Terminator 2. Bad news, man. We're behind schedule. <laughs> yeah. B- Bill Wisher is one of those, I don't know, kind of unsung screenwriters because he he 
has had his hand in a lot of stuff. I mean, he he wrote the he co-wrote the two Terminator movies. You know, I think he got an additional dialogue. Uh, is what James Cameron said. That, that's the credit he gets on the Terminator. Additional dialogue, not screenwriting, but he got paid for it. You know, he also co-wrote the novelization of the Terminator. Yeah, I was going to say uh, yeah. we should mention Randall Frakes, uh, yeah. who, who you brought up. But uh, according to Cameron and Wisher, he was in and out of all of this too. He was the Roger Corman Cameron guy. Wrote the mm-hmm. novelization with Wisher. And he wrote well, the T two well, novelization. Yeah, and it was the three of them initially. I mean, they're the three who made Xenogenesis. You know, together. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so like early talks of T2, you know, you're going to talk about them holding up here in a second. But apparently Frakes was there at the beginning too, like uh, kicking around ideas for the T1000 and like what the movie would be about, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he would go on to um, he would go on to write. Uh, Judge Dredd, the, the the Stallone version of Judge Dredd. Perfect. Uh, he wrote the Thirteenth Warrior. Remember that with Antonio Banderas. He oh, made yeah. him sound badass. Like we worked on building him up at first. Yeah. And then, well, yeah. Like, I mean, ter- hey, he's still a, he's still a working screenwriter. He also wrote the the Exorcist prequel, which is not great. But you know, uh, but that you can't blame all of that on him either. I remember actually liking the 13th warrior for what it's worth. I, I liked was... the 13th warrior. It was based on a Michael Crichton book, eaters of the dead, which I enjoyed. And uh, yeah, I liked it. He, he co-wrote uh eraser, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Nice. And I, yeah. I, that where Schwarzenegger fights an alligator. I, I was going to say the, the movie with the alligator. <laughs> Schwarzenegger has uh, like these, these pivotal scenes. <laughs> yeah. He also did an uncredited rewrite on die hard with a vengeance, which is, um, the, the second best Die Hard movie. I, I don't think it would, is, is a stretch to say. He also did a, a rewrite on uh, Live Free or Die Hard, which is not not the, the best. Uh, or the second Die, best. Or the second best. <laughs> not the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not the worst. So there's that. Anyway, uh, that's, that's Bill Wisher. So where were we? Okay, Bill Wisher and James Cameron. They hole up in Cameron's small uh, home office to work out the story beats on Terminator 2. And they decided during this they're just like bouncing off each other the way they described it is that they would you know they had like one computer one of them would sit there the other one would like talk to them they'd be bouncing ideas and they'd switch and the other one would sit at the computer uh, that was just kind of an old school like two screenwriters you know old school hollywood ver- way of working on this and they decided during this this kind of brainstorming that arnold's character from the first film would be a hero this time around uh, they weren't sure if people would love or hate this idea. Uh, at the time, the Terminator was considered one of like the greatest movie villains of all time. Uh, and they also had to convince Schwarzenegger himself, who was unsure about the move at first, but he eventually kind of gave in to their enthusiasm. Uh, Arnold was iffy on being the good guy for sure. And we and we can talk more about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, uh, Cameron, uh, a quote from him I found with uh, just a, about the the setting up for this process he says as I, as I got ready to write the screenplay i kept asking myself what's the real goal of this movie are we going to blow people away and get them all excited is that it or is there a way we can get them to really feel something i thought it would be a real coup if we could get people to cry over a machine if we yeah. could get people to cry for arnold schwarzenegger playing a robot that would be terrific that was the fun of the whole thing it wasn't the chases the special effects all that stuff Though I do get off on that on a day-to-day basis. I love sitting Gross. at the editing machine and making cuts and getting the action working. But when I look back, the, I think the real thrill was being able to control a response that was totally opposite from what we got the first time and to just have fun with that, to yeah. play against expectations. You got to do that, especially in a sequel. What a fun challenge to yourself as a writer, too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
just that Arnold is a good guy at everything at this point too is, yeah. is what I don't know it, him being a good guy was like the thing in every interview I read was like they're they're like he is we're going to make people love this fucking machine yeah and we have and that was like their zero give point I mean like, I don't I don't know that Arnold played another villain until Batman and Robin probably no, right yeah I can't think of anything that that, sounds about right I can't think of any I mean that was only six years after this movie well, so they've, they've established that they're going to put that make the T-800 their hero. So they had to move on to their villain next, the uh, the liquid metal T-1000, the second Terminator that Cameron had envisioned when working on his original outline for the first film. So the two, uh, Wisher and Cameron, they, they kept throwing out ideas uh, of what this character was capable of, what if he morphed into a knife or squeezed through prison bars. They're like, you know, bouncing these ideas off of each other. And they were having a lot of fun. They're having a blast kind of work playing off each other's creativity. And occasionally what during this process, they would wonder if what they were writing was even possible to like put on film. So they would call up the folks at Industrial Light and Magic. They'd call up like Dennis Murin uh, to ask, hey, we've got this idea where the T-1000 is going to like turn liquid and, and go through prison bars. Is that something you guys could do? And the answer was always yes, whether ILM knew how the hell they were actually going to pull it off or not. At yeah, one point, why not, right? Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so at one point during the development, while Cameron was hammering out the details of how his villain would work, he actually met with his friend, Stan Winston. Uh, you know, Stan Winston had done the Terminator effects in the first, well, he had worked on everything at this point that James Cameron had done. I don't You guys don't need to know who Stan Winston is. Uh, so they, <laughs> the, the two of them meet up. They're like at Cameron's apartment hanging out. He's telling him all these ideas because he's really excited about this idea for the T-1000. And he starts explaining the concept to him. You know, he's, he's liquid metal. He can turn into anything. Uh, he can turn into a person, a table, a knife blade. But Winston kind of raised a concern saying, I don't know who the bad guy is. I need a character, a specific image. Uh, to Winston, what Cameron was describing sounded like a blob of made of goo, not like a villain. You know, there's no <laughs> character there. And Cameron respected Winston's opinion, and he respected his track record for creating iconic characters. And so he started thinking about this. And then later in the evening, Stan Winston gets a phone call from James Cameron. James Cameron had had an epiphany, and Winston call, or Cameron called Winston to tell him uh, he's a cop. That's what we're going to do. He's, we're going to make him look like a cop, like an LAPD officer. According to Cameron, and he, and he talked about some of this already, but he says, uh, I started thinking about the film in two stages. In the first stage, the future sends back a mechanical guy, essentially what the Terminator became. Good guys send back their warrior. In the end, mechanical guys destroy. But up there in the future, somewhere, they say, well, wait a minute. That didn't work. What else do we have? And the answer is something terrible, something even they're afraid of, something they've created and they keep locked up, hidden away in a box, something they're terrified to unleash because even they don't know what the consequences will be, they being the machines, now in charge of the future. And that thing in the box becomes a total wild card. It could go anywhere, do anything. It's a polymorphic metal robot with nothing more than kind of a blob, like what you were just talking about. He said, I saw it as this mercury blob that could form into anything. Its powers were almost unlimited. And even in the future, they couldn't control it. He's like, writing that all down just scared me. Just sitting there <laughs> writing that story scared me. And he said, when we were there with Randy Frakes talking and asking, what could this be? The big question was always, who is the bad guy? When you've already created the ultimate badass, who could be a worthy adversary for Arnold Schwarzenegger? And it's like, uh, you could do Sarah and John versus the Terminator again, but that doesn't move the ball down the field very far. We realized we had originally conceived the Terminator as a uh, infiltration unit. It, it sneaks in, moves into places completely undetected and unnoticed. Obviously, Arnold 
upended all of that. But (laughs) this gave us a chance to go back to a normal looking person. Uh, He's like, in an abstract sense, it's actually the same setup as the first movie. Michael Bean's kind of shady and on edge. You don't know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy to start it all off. They say all that is said, they said it in the commentary. They're like, uh, you know, we, we, we played it like that, even though we knew deep down there's going to be a shit ton of interviews beforehand where people, yeah, yeah, everyone knew that Arnold is a good <laughs> guy. Um, but they said it actually worked out really well too, because they landed on cop. They're like, that guy can go anywhere. He can do anything. He can ask uh, questions without anyone wondering why he's asking questions. Yep. And-, and right at the same time as they're filming the Rodney King thing happened. Yeah. Like on it at a location where they filmed across the street from the bar, right? The biker bar. <laughs> yes. Oh, geez. Yeah. He said, he, he says in the commentary yeah. that literally they found out that the footage on that guy who filmed it's video camera right before the Rodney King beating is him filming them shooting the Terminator. Yeah. You can see him in the background. <laughs> yeah. Out of town. Yeah, oh wild. man. It's wild. But the cop, uh, the cop turned out to be the perfect yeah. <laughs> villain. Yeah, obviously that part wasn't planned, uh, unless there's some really nefarious shit going on behind the scenes. <laughs> right. James Cameron <laughs> plotted all Wait a minute, did plot. James Cameron... <laughs> He's responsible for the beating of Rodney King in the LA <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Oh, man. He's, still, he's still waiting for the right time to release the footage he shot <laughs> during that. But. And see, you guys were worried that I was going to get us canceled. Uh, so, but, but changing the character to an LAPD officer underlined a central theme to the Terminator movies, as Cameron would note in later interviews. He said, this is a quote from Cameron, the Terminator films are not really about the human race getting killed off by future machines. They're about us losing touch with our own humanity and becoming machines, which allows us to kill and brutalize each other. Cops think of all non-cops as less than they are, stupid, weak, and evil. They dehumanize the people they are sworn to protect and desensitize themselves in order to do their job. So I guess Cameron is team ACAB. <laughs> I was literally about to say, did you just turn this into an ACAB podcast? Come on now. J- James Cameron did. I'm, I'm, just, I'm reading quotes. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it it, it, it did. The, the timing was impeccable, James yeah, Cameron. Yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> Even if it was unintentional, it worked. It really worked. So after a few weeks, Cameron and Wisher had a 40 or 50 page treatment. Uh, they split it in half and each went to turn their half into a script. That initial draft ran about 140 pages and had a lot of scenes that would not make the final film, as early drafts often do. Uh, Cameron had actually wanted to finish the script before heading to the Cannes Film Festival that May. So what Carol Co. would be announcing their slate of upcoming films at Cannes Film Festival. They had this big to-do, this big party, you know, uh, announcing all their upcoming films, including Terminator 2. And he raced to the deadline and hit like literally hit print on his computer as a limousine waited outside ready to take him to Carol Co's private airplane that would take him to France. And it's like him and like Paul Verhoeven and like all these like big directors that Carol Co was working in. And he's already like 20 minutes late uh, waiting on this thing. His printer was like jamming and stuff. So he's like, uh, <laughs> he's like running behind. So he, he walks on the plane and he's just like, oh, the, everyone like is looking at him like this fucking guy. Like, <laughs> who does he think he is? Yeah. Uh, you know, he's making us all late. Uh, but he walks on the plane, script in hand, and he actually handed Schwarzenegger the script on the plane. And Schwarzenegger read it on the plane to France while James Cameron just like passed out because he'd been awake for 36 hours or something at this point trying to finish the script. To, to quote Wisher, he said, uh, we... 
you know, they, they, they spent all of that time together and they, uh, quote, we, we didn't split scenes up in the writing of Terminator 2 as happened in the Terminator. We wrote the T2 treatment out loud, side by side, taking turns typing. It was very specific and detailed. It was the whole movie. Then we cut it in half, spent a couple of weeks apart, simply fleshing scenes out. Then we traded halves, rewrote each other, then came back together, went over all of it together, side by side. Apparently, this is a common process for both of them, by the way. They call it uh, the scriptment. I like uh, that process. It sounds sounds fun. Yeah, yeah you write cool. a treatment and you just keep expanding on it until you get an Until it becomes screenplay. a screenplay, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cameron was writing Point Break. He finished it right before this. And then the last 25 pages of the script were written like nonstop. Uh, and, and, and so it was just 36 hours of coffee and no sleep between the two. And, uh, Wisher says, yeah, like he literally, uh, printed it out right before stepping on the limousine. He said for what it's worth, he, he said that Cameron had promised, uh, Karolko execs that he'd get them that script for a formal announcement at the, the con film festival. And it from, was, what it was Cameron's, kinda... from what Cameron says, like the, uh, the story itself, of Terminator two is about 50, 50 him and Bill Wisher. Uh, like they, that was like, they, they collaborated completely on that, but the final screenplay, like the dialogue and all that that you hear in the film is almost completely James Cameron. Like he basically the shooting script, like all, all the details in the shooting script are mostly his work. Uh, yeah. I think they had the Cameron. idea of like where the story was going. Like that when they talk about it, they're saying they're like, they would, they would just like flesh out different parts of, the story like right. basically like why does this happen he said that any anytime one of us had an idea we talk about it then one of us sit down and write then we got tired we trade places continue typing and he said uh we gave every scene a separate file we had a file for the nuclear blast scene for sarah's escape from the hospital for the kid robbing the atm machine and so on and we kept the hammer down we just forced ourselves to produce ideas just make scenes is what we would say. And uh, we just kept flowing. If it's shit, we'll throw it out later until eventually they were just not sleeping anymore. <laughs> it honestly sounds like a good process for somebody who doesn't like the, the process of sitting down and writing a screenplay. Right. You know, it, yeah. it feels more collaborative. Like you're bouncing oh, ideas yeah. off a friend, which is it's, it gets your like adrenaline going a little bit more. I can I can imagine. Yeah. And we know that James Cameron's an adrenaline junkie anyway. So. Yeah. Right. Uh, so they've got they he finishes this screenplay, at least this uh, initial draft. He uh, gives it to Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger reads it on the planet. He really likes it, but he's a little dubious about the idea of his character not getting to kill anyone. He's like, I'm th I'm the Terminator. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> killing anyone. Cameron says that was always his problem with the thing. Yeah. It was even not even just the good guy thing. It was that he doesn't kill people. Yeah. And, he, uh, he, had to, he, said, he really had to convince them. We said when the right they choice. pitched him, they, they went to breakfast together and said uh, that he was like the first person they had to work shit out with was Arnold. And they had, they'd had this breakfast and they were confirming details. And he said he was iffy on being the good guy. But that was, like I said, Cameron and Wishers, like, no give. They're like, mm -hmm. no, you're the good guy. This is the whole point of the movie. And we don't want to create a moral quandary. So you can't be killing people. That's not going to happen. And he's like, and we got to, it's just got to happen that way. And there's no compelling reason at the beginning of the movie for you not to kill people, but you're not going to kill people. Like you're just, you're just not. And he said what he had to break the news to him. He said the literal conversation was, okay, you don't kill anybody in this movie, but on the Terminator, that's what I do. He said, then Arnold starts trying to negotiate with him. Okay, fine. But I kill people until the boy tells me not to. And he says, no, Arnold, you do not kill people in this movie. I will kill one person. No, Arnold. <laughs> This will be a terrible movie. 
No, it will not. <laughs> I mean, oh, I come, see on. Where come on, let me kill somebody. You do kind of see where he's coming from. You almost, uh, you know, in the biker bar, it almost doesn't make sense for him not to kill anyone because he, he has no reason not to, except I guess they could have written a, like that whoever he steals from is like a murderer or a criminal, like a bad guy, you know, and, and make it a little more justified or something. And, and they don't really, I mean, the guys in the biker bar are not like, good dudes clearly <laughs> but uh but they don't we don't see any criminal acts from them you know but if we had seen a criminal act then you could almost justify it by saying oh yeah but he just he's just killing bad guys kind of thing but, i love the idea of them sitting there though and just having that conversation yeah, right just like <laughs> well uh, okay just, after the kid tells me not to i won't kill anybody no you don't kill anybody fine i'll kill one person and then it's like no arnold no <laughs> no you're not listening arnold <laughs> uh, and, I, and i think that they're having this conversation in France at con, like at breakfast one day, yeah. like after they've arrived there, <laughs> he's still trying to convince them. So uh, it did not take a lot of convincing to get Linda Hamilton back on board to play Sarah Connor. Cameron told her it's 12 years later, your son's a target and you're in a mental hospital. Like that was his selling point on that. And she was into it. Uh, so Hamilton herself was, uh, she, she identified a lot with Sarah Connor because by the time Terminator 2 came around, she she was a single mother. Uh, she had struggled with mood uh, disorders and depression throughout her entire life. Uh, she was actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder a couple of years after Terminator 2. Uh, so she was able to kind of use her own experiences when playing the character. She was kind of able to access those, those parts of her past in order to play uh, this version of Sarah Connor. Her biggest challenge, though, was the character's physical transformation. Uh, Cameron hired a guy named Uzi Gal. Uh, an ex-Israeli commando. Uh, he, he was hired to be her personal trainer and her weapons trainer. Wasn't he, Uzi Gal a character in Planet Terror? Um, I don't know. I mean, th there's a couple different actual people named Uzi Gal uh, that, that I could find there. If you look up the gun, the Uzi, it's named after someone, uh, uh, an Israeli commando named Uzi Gal, but it's not, as far as I could find, the same guy, because I think it this guy would have been too young uh, like yeah. character yeah, i was totally the making the joke but that's pretty awesome yeah, <laughs> yeah it feels like a character off of the boys right <laughs> <It's> yeah like, <laughs> yeah Uzi gal she's joining yeah. the seven but there this is a guy like the, the actual uzi was named after someone named uzi gal but i don't think it was the same guy it, i couldn't find anything that said that they were the same person oh. anyway uh this guy he has Hamilton working out for three hours a day, six days a week for four months to get in shape for this. And, and it's not just, it's not just, uh, I mean, a lot of it obviously is physically working out. I mean, you can tell by looking at her in the film, uh, but it was also her weapons training. Uh, he was doing both. And for her weapons training, he had her strip and reassemble the three main weapons that she uses in the film in the dark repeatedly every single day to where she could basically do it with her eyes closed. Uh, she could just feel it out. He would also like, he would throw tennis balls at her while she loaded her guns, training her to become incredibly precise in her movements. Uh, she was so precise, in fact. So this whole time she's doing weapons training, she's not actually shooting anything. She's just learning to move with precision. And it worked so well that when the first time that she went to a, a firing range, Uzi took her to a firing range and she emptied the gun. Uh, she was using a, a handgun the one that she uses in the film, she empties the entire magazine into the target. And it's one of those targets. that's like, you know, like a silhouette of a dude and every round landed right in the center of the target's torso. Nice. And she had never fired a gun before. Wow. But with live rounds, isn't that wild? <laughs> Yeah, like that's that's fucking nuts. That's how intense his training was that it got her to that point. Cameron uh, says straight out that he thinks Hamilton's like the first female 
like the first actress that he's ever seen completely do the physical transition like him like she did here for this movie everything about her has changed yeah uh, which was i mean important- it, even when she showed up on set and like arnold saw her for the first time arnold's like holy shit you're buff like coming from mr universe that's a yeah that's a pretty big deal <laughs> yeah that's quite a compliment yeah. <laughs> and, and and john and sarah were like the, the huge parts of the movie i mean and then like i mean she's playing completely different character than what she was in the original movie which yeah is, she has changed a lot since then yeah, uh, because uh, of the circumstances of the first movie. Right. Yeah. Like according to Wisher, he says we, we concluded that Sarah would have spent time with survivalists, possibly drug dealers, all manner of unsavory types to develop skills that she need to protect John. She becomes and, a doomsday prepper. Yeah. yeah because exactly. she knows that doomsday is actually coming and she knows the date. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> they, they had no that's a that's that's a great point because like Cameron when he talks about the characters being what drives him to be invested in the story he said to him and Wisher sat down and they're like okay he, he said quote Sarah Connor was really interesting especially in Terminator 2 Judgment Day and the time difference between Terminator and T2 I had to backfill those intervening nine years I had to find efficient ways of dramatically evoking what happened to her the tricky part was having it all make sense to a member of the audience who didn't remember or hadn't seen the first Terminator Basically, I had a character popping onto the screen in a certain way and therefore had to create a backstory for that character. He said it was fun because they tried to treat it like there was never the first movie. So they tried to write this movie. It's like you can get everything you need from Terminator 2. You don't what what Todd said at the top of the show, like you don't have to have seen the original Right. Um, I mean, even even in her introduction, you've got Dr. Silberman talking to the other people that he's like touring around the facility. And he basically gives an entire like outline of the first film yeah in, yeah. in like a 30 second <laughs> conversation yeah he said he, you're, you're you're talking about somebody who's encountered something that nobody else believes so it's somebody just telling a story like she's telling the story and uh he says he he likened it to invasion of the body snatchers where kevin mccarthy swears he's seen something shocking nobody believes him then he starts telling the story in terminator 2 she's locked up in a mental institution and that raises the real question is she really crazy the advantage of doing a sequel is that you can play games you can't play in the original. For example, I know the audience knows that the Terminator is real, so they're going to think she's crazy, uh, or they're not going to think she's crazy, but the question still remains, but has she gone crazy? Has the past yeah. ordeal made her lose touch with mm-hmm. reality? Mm-hmm. And he said what, what was disturbing for him is that later on, like people would use this to be like, Sarah Connor's a role model for women, and he was like, nothing could be farther from the truth. I wanted people to invest in her emotionally to feel sorry for her because she'd been through hell, but people were making this extrapolation, like a straight line from, from Ripley to Sarah Connor. And he's like, these are two very different characters. Ripley's been through trauma. She's had certain innate characteristics of leadership and wisdom under fire. She's a hero. Sarah's not a hero. She's warped and twisted. She's a survivor. Uh, but yeah, she's she strengthened, but in yep. a sad kind of way. The initial image I had of her was to have a big scar running down the side of her face. He said, and we did makeup tests with the scars, but it was just a nightmare to deal with that day to day. He's like, I want her to look like Tom Berger in Platoon. Uh, oh, wow. And she was up for it. But the last thing uh, she had done was playing Beauty and Beauty and the Beast for three years. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, he's like, but he was like, I thought it was a tribute to her as an actress that she could deal with this without any makeup whatsoever. And he said he 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 always sees people talk about the physicality of what she was doing, but he, he says he doesn't think people know how to deal with like how dark and desolate and resourceful she was with the mm-hmm. character. 
she she got somebody he 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 complains like later interviews just how how many stupid interviews that she got set up for just asking her about like what was your workout regimen and what was this and this and he's like man you're missing like how great and fucked up she is in this movie yeah and he said that was like her only request like when he went to go talk to her or when he called her to like bring her on the movie he told her the details and she was like okay but I want to be real crazy. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to play it safe. Like I want to be a nut job. And she does. Uh, it, we, we probably also should not skip over the, the fact uh, while we're talking about Linda Hamilton, that Hamilton and Cameron had an affair during the filming of Terminator two, uh, which neither publicly acknowledged for years because Cameron was still married to Catherine Bigelow at the time. Uh, but as Gary mentioned earlier, they would uh, after not long after the release of Terminator 2 or around the time of the release of Terminator 2, they moved in together. I don't think they ever got married, but they moved in together for, for a while and uh, they had a, a pretty long relationship. So as long as we're talking about, you know, James Cameron's other relationships, we can't skip that one over. <laughs> yeah. For whatever yeah. he says, James Cameron appreciated the physicality of her performance. If you yeah, know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. And I think that you do to quote Joe Bob. <laughs> so with his returning stars on board, it was time to find actors to play his two new major characters, the teenage John. Well, I put teenage in my notes, although I think he's supposed to be 10 years old in the movie, which he is, does not come across as a 10 year old no. uh, and the T 1000. So John Connor was going to be the toughest one to cast. Uh, this character had to convincingly look like the son of Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean. Uh, he had to talk and act like a kid, and he had to show enough character for the audience to believe that he would grow up to be the leader of the human resistance. Uh, but he also had to come across as vulnerable enough to need the T-800's protection. That's a lot to ask of a 10-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> so enter Molly Flynn. Molly Flynn is... Uh, is has become like a legendary casting director, although she did not start casting movies until she was in her fifties. I believe she was like a, I think she was a theater teacher at a college somewhere uh, before this. Yeah. So she's Cameron's casting director and would be for, for many, many years uh, starting with this film, but she did a nationwide search to try to find an actor to play John Connor, looking at hundreds of professional child actors and no one was jumping out. And, And a lot of them had the same issue that like, the kids that Cameron was looking at to play Newt and aliens had, which that they all just acted like they were in serial commercials. Like they would just smile all the time, you know, and you can't have that when you we've get, you've got this guy, this kid who's got a traumatic past and is running for his life for literally the entire movie is, is he's running for his life. So uh, Mally Finn goes out into the field. None of these like professional actors seemed to be working and she started watching kids play at the boys and girls club of pasadena when a young 12 year old kid named edward furlong caught her eye there was just something about him that jumped out at her uh, as being right for john connor Uh, and furlong had some stuff in common with john connor Uh, he had never met his dad he did not live with his mom Uh, he was streetwise yet vulnerable uh, when Finn approached him, the kid snarled at her. He actually said, like, what do you want, frog lips? Something like that to her. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, he thought he was getting in trouble for something because this adult that he doesn't know is coming up to him, you know. Uh, but he dropped his guard when she asked if he'd like to audition for a movie. So he did. He auditions. Uh, the audition did not go great because he has never acted in his life. He was awkward. Uh, and he was intimidated by Hamilton because he, he read for the role with Hamilton. Uh, but he had this quality that Cameron liked, like this this quality that made him seem real, you know. 
And Cameron continued to audition other actors, but they all seemed kind of phony to him. They all had that kid actor quality to them that he did not want. Uh, And then uh, Mally Finn had Edward Furlong work with a dialogue coach for a few weeks because, again, he's never acted. So uh, he works with a dialogue coach for a few weeks. He comes back and auditions for Cameron again, and Cameron hires him. Uh, there on the spot like he there was just something about this kid despite him being very inexperienced that just felt right you know Hmm. he never you you said he didn't know his dad his mom had lost control of him and so his aunt and uncle like had sued for custody of him uh there's a story Cameron tells about like apparently when she walked up to him to ask him like do you have any experience acting he said well my uncle films our birthday parties (laughs) 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 and the I like the story, but like John Connor was crucial for Cameron, like for yeah. the whole story. It was actually what uh, propelled Cameron and Wisher when they were writing the whole thing, uh, like going back to the moral quandary stuff uh, before in the direction they decided to go on this one. Cameron says that one thing that always got him is when he'd speak to people about the Terminator. He, he said from his experience, they'd always remember it fondly and talk about how cool Arnold was spraying bullets everywhere. And well, as we know, that's not the, the point of the movie, but uh, <laughs> it, it's but but it's probably a mix of everybody remembering that movie, but also everything else Arnold had like been Commando doing. and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. But but Cameron points out that there was like this blurring of the distinction that this dude was the bad guy of that movie. Um, I read a really cool series of interviews uh, with Sid Field in uh, the art of visual storytelling, and uh, Cameron says. Uh, this made me very nervous. I knew that the bad guy being the hero would get me into some pretty dangerous territory, morally and ethically. I absolutely refused to do another film where Arnold Schwarzenegger kicks in the door and shoots everybody in sight and walks away. I thought there must be a way to deflect this image of the bad guy as a hero and use what's great about the character. I didn't know what to do, but I thought the only way to deal with it would be to address the moral issues head on. And then we found out the key was this kid. Because it's never really explained why John Connor has a strong moral fiber. He says, for me, John was pushed by the situation he sees when the Terminator almost shoots the guy in the parking lot. I think everybody invents their own moral code for themselves. And usually this happens in your teens based on what you've been taught, what you've seen in the world, what you've read, your own inherent makeup. So I started asking myself, what is it that makes us human? Part of what makes us human is our moral code. But what is it that distinguishes us from this hypothetical machine that looks and acts like a human but is not he said that john connor has got to be the key to that that intuitively knows what's right even if he can't articulate it john says you can't go around killing people and the terminator says why not and the kids he can't answer it he He just can't yeah he kind of gets into an ethical philosophical question that could go on and on but all he can say is you just can't yeah Like you said, he said, I thought the best way to deal with this was to not be coy about it and hope it slides by, but to tackle it head on and make the story about why you can't kill people. He says, so now we've got this character associated with being the quintessential killing machine. That's his purpose, devoid of emotion, remorse, any kind of human social code. He suddenly finds himself in the weirdest dilemma of his career. He can't kill anybody. He doesn't know why. He's got to figure it out. He's got to because now he's kind of half human and he's dealing with a human that he's sworn to protect. And he figures it out at the end. The Tin Man gets a heart. He was like, once all, once I clicked into that, I knew what the whole movie was. <laughs> it was like that. That was it. And so I, I don't know. I just, I just like that part of it with with him talking about that with John Connor. So it was yeah. very crucial to him that 
whatever this kid did, that he be able to take the audience along that, that Arnold is, you know, like Arnold's going to have to learn this because the kid is very certain that this yeah. is the, the moral way to be. So for his villain, uh, the T-1000, Cameron wanted a lean, agile actor, someone who would be a good contrast to Arnold. Uh, he said that if the T-800 ha- was a kind of human panzer tank, then the T-1000 had to be a Porsche, you know, sleek, fast. Uh, oddly enough, one person that Cameron was considering for the role early on was Billy Idol. Uh, and he even had concept art worked up that showed Idol in the T-1000's cop uniform. Uh, but then Idol broke his leg in a motorcycle accident. He was not able to do the film, so that was out the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, the part went to a little-known actor by the name of Robert Patrick. Uh, so before, for, for what it's worth, he said they did toss around for, for a little while to Arnold. I think it would be too difficult, maybe. I think that's a special why they were like, That's why they kind of threw that out pretty quickly. I think that's mm-hmm. what Wisher said. was like they were just kind of like, nah, that's too much. Yeah, but, but plus it doesn't give you that contrast. You know, like this is an upgrade this new character he's got to be sleek and and you know uh, a different version of this so they give it to robert patrick uh, before terminator 2 robert patrick had appeared in a few small villain roles in various roger corman productions uh his uh his biggest role had been as a terrorist in die hard 2 he's one of like the lackeys you know in die hard 2 uh, but yeah. t2 would effectively launch his career where he's mostly played villainous characters uh mostly although he had you guys probably know a pretty uh a several year long run on the X-Files as a, um, the replacement for David Duchovny's character on the show. But the, uh, the, the role of the T-1000 was so iconic that he actually played it in two additional non-Terminator movies. So pop quiz for you guys. Do you know which movies those are? Wayne's World 2 and... Wayne's World 1. Oh, it was the first one? It's the no, first it's two. One. Is it it's two? two? No, because he's going to get Tia Carrera. Have you seen this boy? Wait, yeah. is it? Wait, wait, That's maybe the, it is one. The, it's the first one. It's the first one. It it's is the, the first, first one. one. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, oh. And Wayne's World 2. No. Both Wayne's World movies. I'm drawing a blank on the second. Last Action Hero. Oh, <laughs> nice. Yeah, he's Very in Last cool. Action Hero as well. So, which obviously is a fun little nod because because of what last action hero is yeah (laughs) well here's another fun fact for you where the t-1000 first appears in the movie it's under the same bridge that we'll see jamie lee curtis meet bill paxton in in true lies oh really they just filmed the scene in the same spot nice nice and here's another fact uh you know (laughs) mally finn uh can go and watch kids play at the boys and girls clubs of, of pasadena but when i do it I'm asked to leave no matter what city I do it in. <laughs> well, they, well, that's because you're in a database. Oh, no, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Robert Patrick went through a very different type of training for his role than like, you know, Landa Hamilton did. His training focused on flexibility that would make his movements appear more fluid on camera. And he practiced sprinting, breathing only through his nose so that he would appear more robotic while running uh, robert patrick i mean he is you can't tell a lot in the movie because he's wearing the cops uniform except for in the scene where he's buck naked at the beginning but he's pretty he's very fit you know but it, but it's more of like a lean muscle he was like a football and track star in college uh in very good shape and very very fast there were some scenes like the scene where he's chasing john on the motorcycle mm. so eddie furlong is on a motorcycle obviously not really riding it in that scene he's um 
where it's like a close up of him and the T1000 is behind him. He's on the back of a truck, you know, the, the motorcycle is attached and Robert Patrick is chasing them out when they leave the ball, you know, and he caught up with the truck. He was running so fast. Oh, geez. <laughs> they actually, they had to, they had to tell the guy right that driving the truck to go faster because he caught up with them and like, and he like tagged Eddie Furlong on the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, gotta be creepy. I don't even wow. care if you're acting. Yeah. That's gotta be kind of weird. <laughs> like, like people over the years have been like, are they, are they like speeding up the film to make you look like you're running faster? And they're not like, he's really running that fast. Like yeah. Robert Patrick is, is that fast in the movie. That's it's pretty, pretty wild. I did want to bring up. Yeah. That Cameron credits Robert Patrick a lot on helping Dude, to so build good. the T 1000. Yeah. He said he put in he a is, lot of time. He said they went into like an extensive audition process where they were like literally building the T 1000, literally building it like it literally exists, and wow. it's coming. It's coming for you. <laughs> um, no, but he said, he, he said the first thing that stood out was how interesting he looked, but Patrick, when they went through this process, they were, they were actually like creating different reasons that Patrick had a lot of in, influence on that. Like, yeah. Uh, obviously the eerie smoothness of his emotions. My favorite was that he kind of, that they developed this, like he'll physically touch things. Yeah. Uh, like scan yeah. them. Like you scan. Yeah. Them. Because and if be you, able... if you notice, if you know that he's doing that, you can see him do it throughout the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They said that they like, they obviously never discussed it, but the T 1000 would want to feel things because he'd have the ability to sense the molecular structure of the mm -hmm. objects. And yep. then he could replicate them later. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and the T 1000 is great, by the way, they love the idea of the little guy who could beat the shit out of Arnold too. Uh, and how creepy it'd be to have him be experimental even for Skynet. And he mimics personalities. He's unkillable. But Cameron's scientific brain did make them like, that was like, you know, we, we've gone through this every movie, but he's he's got limits because science. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, quote, there had to be limits about his shape changing. Could he turn into a Coca-Cola machine? No, because he can't change mass. It certainly can't change its weight. Weight and mass are two physical constraints. It can become things, but it couldn't turn into a small dog because he's too big. There was too much mass, too much material. It can mimic weapons, but it can't mimic a weapon that could actually fire. A gun has moving parts. There's gunpowder inside a brass shell. So he can't make himself into that. So he said, okay, it can't make itself into a gun, but it could certainly make itself into a knife or something flat like linoleum. Uh, knowing it could be a knife, we knew we had to show that once or twice because that's going to be cool. But we figured... We could fit that into several different situations. He said, but then we would try to like stick to realism. We'd be writing a sequence, for example, like Sarah's escape from uh, Pescadero, uh, Pescadero in which the T-1000 steps through the bars. But if he steps through them, it would be nice to let everybody know he's really stepping through them. So we get the gun caught in the bars. Yeah. Uh, he has to reach out and adjust it to get through. Yeah, it's it, it's. A, I love that great attention to detail. Yeah, um, that's, Robert, that's such a great that's such a great moment. It's there a too. great <laughs> moment. It really is. It's still and it still holds up so well. Yeah, uh, Robert Patrick's a Georgia boy. He's from Marietta, Georgia. Do you know that? Hey. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, he moved around a lot before landing in Los Angeles. Also, another little uh, fun fact about Robert Patrick: his younger brother Richard Patrick. Uh, was the touring guitarist for Nine Inch Nails for a little while. Oh, and wow. then he later, he left Nine Inch Nails to form his own band, which is Filter. 
Like, hey, well, man, hey, man, nice shot filter. I did not know that. Yeah, wow. that's Robert Patrick's <laughs> little brother. <laughs> how, about, nice. how about that? So anyway, uh, the, the rest of the cast of Terminator 2 included Earl Bowen re- reprising his role of Dr. Silberman from the first film. Uh, we have Cameron regular Jeanette Goldstein as John's foster mother, Janelle, decidedly less buff than she was in Aliens. She, I guess her bodybuilding left Hispanic. Over. Less Hispanic, but much more white this time around. Uh, and Xander Berkeley, who I, I love Xander Berkeley. I love seeing him pop up in things, but he plays the foster father, Todd. Uh, Michael Bean reprised his role of Kyle Reese in a dream sequence that was cut from the theatrical version of the film, but was later restored in the special edition. I'm sure we'll talk about that here in a bit. The only um, other like significant role in the film is the role of Miles Dyson, who played Joe Morton or played by Joe Morton, excuse me. Uh, Joe Morton is, is a great character actor. I really yeah. love anytime I see him pop up, even if it's in like a, uh, like a shitty uh, DC superhero movie. <laughs> <laughs> but his first major role came in 1970 as the lead character in John Sayles, the brother from another planet. Uh, but I re- I just, I love Joe Morton. I, and I, I think it's because of this movie. It a hundred percent is this movie. Every time I see him, no matter what Miles other Dyson. I see him, I think of Miles Dyson. And I think of when he's like blowing up the building at the his, end. He, his death scene in this is one of the greatest death scenes in movies, in my yeah. opinion. Like, yeah, because he's awesome. like, the way he's like hyperventilating and right. then his breath slows slowly slows down until it stops and then boom what a great death scene if yeah. you're gonna have a death scene in a movie that's how to fucking do it Honestly, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's great no i always think of that every yeah. single time i see him yep. in anything uh, also him. also dr silverman cameron just seems like he's having a good time with that guy with uh, yeah with earl bowen he <laughs> yeah. uh, the commentary calls him frustratingly smarmy <laughs> but <laughs> he acts like he's I've, so I've fun been for him. <laughs> uh, so while we're on the subject of the cast, Todd, uh, any any Star Trek alums this time around? Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, we've already covered uh, Jeanette Goldstein and uh, Earl Bowen's uh, mm-hmm. contributions to the Star Trek franchise. So instead, I'll begin with Mr. Joel Kramer, who plays an uncredited male nurse. He is actually the stunt coordinator in the L.A. unit for Star Trek Discovery on the pilot episode, The Vulcan Hello, and that was back in 2017. Then we got uh, Denny Pierce. Who's bur- who's credited as Burley Attendant? There's a lot of Burley people in this in this movie. Burley Attendant. Yeah. Is he, is he the white or the black attendant? I don't know. It doesn't say. It would, that would have helped. I mean, do you have a picture? It's- <laughs> I don't. But he was actually a stunt actor uh, on the Enterprise D. He's uh, uh, uncredited Enterprise D crewman on uh, Star Trek Generations in 1994, and then he also did some stunt work for Star Trek Into Darkness. That's the J.J. Abrams uh, Kelvin timeline that was in 2013. And we got Terrence Evans, the tanker truck driver. Uh, he's got a couple of episodes of uh, Star Trek Deep Space. Another Nine. stunt performer, I assume. Because... Uh, no, this one's actually this one's actually uh, okay. got some because he just credit. basically gets like thrown out of a truck in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but he was in uh, season one, episode 14, Progress from 1993, as a character named Baltram. And season two, episode five, Cardassians, uh, named, and he played a character named Proka. And then he was also in an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, the episode was called Nemesis. And it was in 1997, he played Ambassador Treen. And then we've got Abdul Salam El Razik. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, he plays Gibbons, the, the guard that they find uh, 
uh, duct tape to the uh, to the toilet there at Cyberdyne. He was actually in Star Trek Next Generation Season 1, Episode 14, 11001001 from 1988 as a bass player. I think that was probably a holodeck. Uh, holy <laughs> scene. That he, um, I, would hope, I would hope so. Yeah. Otherwise, is, <laughs> I like to think this is the wild, weird feature that really sets us apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? The oh, fuck? oh, don't. Oh, there, trust me, there's plenty more. Hang on. We got uh, Mr. Jim Palmer as jock number one. I believe he is the uh, the one who calls Edward Furlong a dipshit. Um, Calling moi a dipshit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he actually did a, uh, some stunt work uh, in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek in 2009. And then we've got uh, Castillo, Castulo Guerrera, uh, who plays Enrique. He did an episode of Next Gen, season three, episode eight, The Price from 1989. He played a character named Seth Mendoza. And then we've got Mr. Edward Furlong. What? Who, yeah, yeah. Now it's uh, it's not official canon, but he was in two episodes of Star Trek Renegades as a character known as Fixer. What's uh, Star was, Trek Renegades? It was basically a, it was an online show that okay. didn't last very long. Was but, it official? Like not a fan? Uh, I think it was. I think it's regarded as one of the closest fan-made productions. Like the the two episodes that uh, Eddie appeared in uh, were the pilot episode and the season two premiere, and both of those were actually directed by Tim Russ, aka Lieutenant Tuvok from Star Trek Voyager. So, like, huh. they got they got some people involved, and if you go through. Um, some of the episode cast list, you'll see like, oh, I know who that is. And I know who that is too. And then this was the big surprise for me. A lot of people forget Nikki Cox, uh, the quintessential nineties, uh, pretty girl from hot, like not in this. She's way too young for me. Yeah. She's way too young, but this was like one of her, this was like one of her early. What was that like sitcom she was in where Bobcat Uh, Goldthwait played a rabbit? Yeah. Unhappily ever after. Yeah. She was so hot in that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, but she actually, before Terminator 2, she was on Star Trek The Next Generation, season two, episode 15, Pen Pals, where she plays the little girl, uh, Sarjenka, who uh, ends up communicating with Data back and forth, and she oh. kind of bonds with Data. Um, she yeah, has one that, line in this, and she narks John out to the cops. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that's everybody on Star Trek. No Dean Norris. I'm surprised bum, bum, bum. Dean Norris never appeared in. You know, no. Dean, you know, Dean Norris, Hank from Breaking Bad. He's oh the, yeah. The SWAT well, team I've, I've got some additional casting yeah. nuggets because I went through everybody. <laughs> yeah, Dean Norris, who also is in Total Recall, he's one of the mutants. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. I don't think you could even see a space in this. But I still knew it was him immediately. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> he should somehow. have been. Uh, what was it? Starship Troopers too. Starship so Troopers. Like, yep. Yeah. Total yeah, Recall. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Yeah. He's around. Cool. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you. So the T-1000, the the character was created with a blend of CG techniques and makeup and puppetry. Uh, Dennis Buren, we mentioned him earlier. uh, He had supervised ILM's groundbreaking work on the Abyss. He was back to supervise the CGI on Terminator 2. So working from photos of Robert Patrick and uh, ILM built 3D models of the actor in their computers. You know, they would scan his face and and everything. Uh, They would duplicate his movements. Even like he had a, a slight limp from an old football injury and they actually incorporated that into their uh their computer 
I guess their their files on oh, him. Wow. Like so, when when you see the T one thousand move in completely CGI form, he's he does have a slight limp, you know, which is pretty <laughs> fun. Uh, for the scenes where the T one thousand changes from one form to another, ILM used a technology called morphing that they had developed in Ron Howard's Willow a few years earlier. So it, it was used in Willow. There's a character, uh, if I remember correctly, that changes to like a goat and like other characters in Willow. Mm. Uh, you guys might remember that. And it didn't really take off after that because Willow did not do very well at the box office. But shit, after after Terminator 2, you saw morphing everywhere. It was in like the Michael Jackson black or white video. Uh, it's in uh, like The Mask, I think is probably the biggest, the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask. Oh, yeah. Probably one of the biggest examples, but you saw it everywhere, like commercials, movies, everything. After this, everyone was morphing things. Uh, so Morbid the- time. Oh, morph, yeah. morphing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Had to had to get the, the Morbius joke in. Got to get a Mor- Morbius joke in there. That That's going to be a, that's what you call an evergreen joke. Yeah, that's an here. evergreen that's, joke. That people will always that's appreciate gonna be, That's going to be really funny a year from now. <laughs> <laughs> So some of the poses that they tried to put the digital T-1000 in were too difficult for ILM's computers. So they actually had to bring in scientists to help them with the math that was required to pull the effects off. Eventually, they were able to do so in part because of a piece of new software invented by an ILM employee named John Knoll and his brother Thomas. Uh, That software was actually an early version of Photoshop. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that cool? Nice. Um, John Knoll, by the way, John Knoll had actually, he had been a, um, uh, an effects, a CG supervisor on the abyss working under Dennis Murin. Uh, he's gone on to become one of the industry's most sought after visual effects guys. He's worked on everything from the star Wars prequels and the star Wars special editions that came out like in the mid nineties, uh, to pirates of the Caribbean, to, uh, the, the Harry Potter movies, to the mission impossible movies and Todd star Trek. Ooh! Early, early in his career, he was a motion control camera operator on uh, the Next Generation and on Star Trek IV, and nice. then he later worked as the visual effects supervisor on Star Trek Generations and First Contact. Very cool. Nice. Isn't that fun? Yeah. So Cameron was uh, he was a little nervous about what ILM could do, despite their reassurances. Uh, after all, if the water tentacle scene in the Abyss had not worked. Uh, he could have just cut the scene out completely. And the, the movie would have been fine without yeah, it, you know. Yeah. Uh, if the T-1000 didn't work, though, uh, he couldn't make the movie. He couldn't make Terminator yeah. <laughs> 2. Like, the T-1000 has to work. But when he saw an early proof of concept shot of the T-1000 walking out of an explosion with the fire reflected off of its sleek chrome body, he knew that it was going to work. It looked just exactly like he had envisioned it. Nice. And overall, ILM's budget on Terminator 2 was $6 million, which was astronomical at the time for a special effects budget. And to put it in, in context, that's the same amount as the entire budget of the first Terminator movie. Wow. Which just used on special effects for this. It's pretty insane. The thing with the yeah. T-1000 is it's like, you've heard of the the Uncanny Valley, right? Yeah. Like, yes. you know, just, I mean, there there's a difficult thing they're working here with two that you, you kind of mentioned like certain poses and everything. It's like this human motion animation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they also call it like deep motion. It's tough because like your brain inherently just knows what's right or not right about a real person moving or walking or talking or whatever. Just built in. The one thing, you know, more than anything is what a human being looks like. 
So mm-hmm. mathematically simulating human motion from scratch is insanely difficult. Yeah. And, uh, and that's where they have to start. Um, and I'm just saying that because there's, there's all this beauty in the effects here, but especially at the time, this was tough as shit. And that's before you get Cameron's ultra, ultra detailed ass involved in everything. Right. <laughs> um, a quote from him on it was, uh, he says, uh, the start point in CGI is always the final form. I wanted the effect of the T-1000 to look like a spoon going into hot fudge. It dimples down, then flows up uh, over and closes. That's the look I wanted. You have to work with the viscosity in order to get that look just right. You have to figure out what the closure looks like. Does the color come back immediately or is there a lag time between where the surface forms and then the color forms after that? We had to create a visual language for this guy. For example, when he forms up from his chrome shape, does he form up with the colors of his uniform and skin and all those things simultaneously? I finally chose to have him assume the absolute finish form in a liquid chrome and then have the color of the uniform be the last thing added. We emphasized the idea that the T-1000 was mimetic, that it was a camouflage technique in the way a chameleon would imitate a color it's sitting on which is why we made up a name for him, a mimetic polyalloy, an, the ultimate chameleon. Yeah, and, and I think that's, I, I love that he puts that much thought into it. Uh, it, like it that, and that makes me think of the scene where he is uh, disguised as the floor, the checkerboard floor in the, yeah. the mental institution. And when he comes up, he still has a little bit of that checkerboard on his face for a moment. You know, like it's really cool. Yeah. Um, Gary, you mentioned the Uncanny Valley. And it made me think of this like tweet that I saw a while back where it says like one of the most frightening things I ever heard is when someone pointed out that the existence of the Uncanny Valley implies that at some point there was an evolutionary reason to be afraid of something that looked human but wasn't. Right. <laughs> that's that I, I have seen that too. Yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. Like there's something about it. It's like it, it's just not quite right. It not quite right. Yeah. So like cavemen were running from something that yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, not real. Not, not real. Not, that's not that looks a little bit that looks mostly like us, but isn't. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the talk around Terminator 2's effects centered around the groundbreaking work that ILM was doing with CGI and, and with good reason, but people forget how much of Stan Winston's work appears on screen. Uh, there are about 15 minutes of screen time where the, C, where the T-1000 displays its morphing and healing abilities, but only about six of those minutes were purely CG. The other nine were achieved with the use of prosthetics and puppets created by Stan Winston Studios. It's practically seamless. <laughs> it is. I mean, that it looks great. Yeah. I almost thought, like you said earlier, you don't need to know who Stan Winston is. I almost get sick of him. I almost want to be like, Stan Winston, <laughs> you want to be the best at fucking everything? Why don't you just, yeah, this is the, this is the price you pay. We no longer want to talk about you. <laughs> yeah, we, everyone knows who you are. <laughs> we just expect uh, that you, yeah. Okay. Stan Winston. If you're, if you're interested in, in this kind of stuff we talk about in this show, you know who Stan Winston is, yeah. but I, I agree. It's, it is seamless because of the blending of practical and CGI. I think it's the same reason I think that Jurassic Park holds up as well as it does, yeah. uh, which again is Stan Winston. There's something about using CGI as needed and then supplementing practical effects with CGI. Mm. But, and then this, this Terminator 2 was really the first time that physical and digital effects were used symbiotically like this. Uh, this had never really been done before. Scenes were often split between ILM and Winston. Uh, for instance, if the T-1000 gets shot with a bullet, Winston's prosthetics would show the bullet hitting the T-1000's chest, and ILM would then close the wounds digitally. You see this in the first confrontation with 
uh, Arnold and, and Robert Patrick in the, you know, in the mall, you know, when mm-hmm. he starts shooting him in the, in the back hallways, uh, a lot of the effects that people assume were CGI are actually from Winston's crew in this. Wow. Uh, Winston's crew created several foam rubber puppets of Robert Patrick to show the T-1000 in various stages of battle. Uh, there was the pretzel man. Uh, that's the one that's uh, where the T-1000's body is splayed open after being shot uh, there towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the donut head puppet where he's got the big hole in his head. Uh, the splash head. Whereas I, I was going to mention like if head you go to, to stanwinstonschool.com, there's detailed like processes like photographed yeah. of like them doing this and this would be great for us to put on social media I blame me as much as anyone um this is like cool stuff you can actually see that like the stan winston impressive. studio website is an outstanding resource it is a it, they 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 document like everything and it's really great it's a really great website the splash that uh, blows my mind because i had no idea like i yeah. i just thought there's no way but like that's they that's a puppet made that shit yeah, that's a puppet. And plus all of the like uh, the, the you know the the finger knife on the the security guard, uh, Jeanette Goldstein's knife or sword arm killing mm-hmm. the foster father, uh that was a prosthetic, you know, that's all that's all practical. Uh, and Xander Berkeley actually said he had to um he had to practice like sword swallowing techniques for a couple of weeks uh to be able, because they had to put that sword in his mouth far enough back to where it looked real. And then, of course, there's a prosthetic on the back of his head where it projects. But yeah, um, Gary's mom's act would have actually been really good in that role, uh, I think. Oh, kind of- there it is. This is oh. a hot battle we have every week. <laughs> the, score, the score is tied up, gentlemen. One one. It really helps when you don't have a gag reflex, though. Yeah, I think the real sad part of all this is is like how much our moms could probably make on OnlyFans now, thanks to us, and and they're not taking advantage. <laughs> Oh man. So one of the most subtle and ingenious effects in the film, once I figured out how they did this, I was like, it kind of blew my mind because it's, it's, it's a small effect that you don't think about as much, but it's, it's the splatters of liquid metal we see when the T-1000 gets hit with a bullet, which you see several times throughout the film. So the effects artists would shoot, they, they shot pellets into mud and then kind of studied the impressions that they made, the little splatter that they would make. Mm. Uh, And then they sculpted those forms uh, and fit them with a spring-loaded mechanism that would snap open the bullet wound on cue. Uh, so the bu- the wounds were attached to a fiberglass chest plate that Robert Patrick wore under a costume that had pre-scored holes in it. Mm. So when he would get shot, uh, you know, a puppeteer off screen would click a button and it would burst out of his uniform. Nice. Uh, so you would think that that was CG because you see it burst open on screen, but it's mm-hmm. 100% practical. Which is, is, is really rad, I think. I, I, I thought it. I caught, like, I, there was at one point he turns and he's moving, and I thought his chest looked a little thicker Bulky, than little it bulkier. did in yeah. the previous shot. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I got there there I got are so many things that go into the thought of these things that, like, I, I don't know that I would, um, an example I'm thinking of right off the top of my head that, like, would I have thought of this were it my job to think of this stuff is yeah. like, uh, uh, it's like when the Terminator's walking up into the bar and you see like from his point of view and I think they do this in the first one too but like it's scanning things mm-hmm. yeah. and and doing all of this and uh, they call it uh, uh, termovision uh, like, Cameron says in the in the commentary he says because no, they could they, they could have come up with a better name he, you know, he said he said <laughs> quote uh, in the thing he's like we call that termovision because 
or clever that way. <laughs> <laughs> but but he points out, he's like, you know, we just made this up. I don't know. Like, this is just a way for you to see what the Terminator sees, which is really not how the Terminator will see because no, the Terminator I mean, there's, is a fucking computer. And it yeah, there's no reason for the Terminator to have like, there's like, no reason for there to be like words on the screen. Right. You know, yeah. It's, it's, it's like purely the computer for the does audience. not process information yeah. this way. It's just, <laughs> but somehow it translates to you that you're like, oh, I'm seeing the Terminator's vision. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. And then that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. It's like, when I think of that, like, I don't, I don't know. It's weird. It's like, <laughs> you just accept it, but it's, it's kind of, it's, it's intriguing to me. Yeah. I, I, I actually thought about that watching it this time, or maybe it was while I was watching the first Terminator. I was like, a computer wouldn't really need to have visual cues like that, but it does you know, obviously the, the audience does need visual cues, right? Because we're not, we're not computers. <laughs> so while it was not nearly as brutal as the shoot for the abyss, the shoot for Terminator two was still a pretty tough one uh, with a release date set. The crew had 12 months from shooting script to release date. Uh, and so in the course of one year, they had to shoot some of the most ambitious action sequences ever committed to film and deliver special effects, the likes of which had never been attempted before. That's a huge undertaking for a movie of this size. And the truncated pre-production schedule meant that Cameron and his crew didn't have the time to prepare as well as they had wanted. There was no time to properly test practical effects before filming. If the effects didn't work, they were just going to have to figure out a way to work around them on the day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure that Cameron's uh, scrappy days working for James for for Roger Corman probably came in handy a lot mm. during during oh, those yeah. moments. 100%. You know, you know. So the shoot began in October of 1990 in the Palmdale Desert and continued all over parts of California until April of 1991. And it was a pretty tough shoot for everyone involved. Uh, and, and James Cameron, once again, was uncompromising in his vision. He had he had a short temper. He was highly demanding of both his cast and crew. Uh, the crew actually had T-shirts made that said, you can't scare me. I work for James Cameron. Uh, there, there were, uh, there are, some of the conversations, and I actually think Schwarzenegger said this in an oral history of, of this that I read, uh, which is on the Ringer's website, by the way. If you want to uh, read a good oral history of the making of Terminator 2, the Ringer published a pretty good one a couple years ago. But Schwarzenegger even talks about it a little bit where he's like, you know, James is, he very much knows his vision and what he wants, but he's not the best at communicating that necessarily to everyone. Like sometimes it's almost like he expects everyone to know what is in his brain without him having to explain it, which is not the best trait in a director. Probably one of, I think some of the best directors are the ones who are able to communicate their ideas to their crew. Yep. Uh, not that James Cameron's not a great director, but he's probably not a great director to work for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, Schwarzenegger and Hamilton, who at this point were old friends of Cameron, especially Schwarzenegger, like him and James Cameron were like, they'd ride motorcycles together on the weekends and stuff. Like they were buddies, you know, they'd smoke nice. cigars together, uh, but they became frustrated with how many takes Cameron was having them shoot. Uh, he reportedly shot for five days, just getting close-ups of Linda Hamilton in Miles Dyson's home. Uh, to get what he wanted, which is, it's a highly emotional scene. And I get that he wanted it to convey that. Uh, But yeah, that from an actor, that's incredibly frustrating. I actually found an interview like from this time where somebody asked Cameron about how hard he is on the crew. uh, And he says uh, he, he realizes and admits that he is quote, very, very hard on his crews. And he says, I don't apologize. And his quote here says, 
if an NFL coach didn't browbeat the guys and say, you fucked up and you didn't do this, I mean, it's perfectly acceptable in sports that mistakes and laziness are not tolerated. If you're working on a big movie, it must imply that you're the best. You presented yourself as a varsity athlete. Fucking be one. That's my philosophy. Uh, and they asked, it was like, so I you mean, firing a lot of people. And he said, he said, he laughed and said, I would never do anything as merciful as firing someone for fucking up. You stay till the end. <laughs> I mean, honestly, he's got a point. <laughs> like, like, you know, yeah. you're, you're spending a hundred million dollars on a movie. Like you got to get it right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and whatever it takes. I mean, I'm not saying like abuse people, but like yelling at people, or whatever, if that's what it takes yeah. to get them to do the job, like, you know, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to work for him, but I understand where he's coming from. It's yeah. weird. Like I, I saw, I mentioned Mike Cameron earlier, his brother. Uh, and it's like this with some people, like even Schwarzenegger, like you mentioned, like some people try to be like, they care about him and they're still like a little defensive of him. Uh, Mike Cameron, I've had a quote where he says, I've been the recipient of a lot of his derogatory remarks and it does hurt your feelings, but he's really a big hearted guy. The people who are close to him know that, and they just kind of tolerate the viciousness. Uh, maybe the reason they're so willing to forgive is that, as everyone says, uh, uh, it's never personal. Uh, Mike Cameron says uh, his movies have an ego, and you don't fuck with his movies. Uh, Michael Bead says he doesn't have an ego. When he throws a tantrum, it's almost like the movie is throwing a tantrum. <laughs> I just thought those were interesting. Yeah. I don't but know. when you're working on a movie like this, like everything has to be right. And of course, James Cameron is, is a bit of a perfectionist, but there's also a lot of moving parts from this. There's a lot of dangerous stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff that like, if one thing goes wrong, a hundred other things are going to go wrong. Well, we saw that on the abyss when he almost died of like, okay, right. so you were in charge of that. You're fired. You're yeah. in charge of that. You're fired. <laughs> yeah. And and nobody can doubt his commitment, you know, right. to right. it because he's putting him, himself in dangerous situations. He's always said like, he's not going to put, he's not going to ask anyone on his crew to do something that he would not be willing to do. Speaking of which though, one of the more dangerous action sequences on the film, which is the chase scene from the film's first act, mm. you know, where the T-1000, it starts at the mall and then it, it, the T-1000 chases John on his, his little uh, dirt bike through the San Fernando Valley uh, flood channels, the LA river. And in this scene, the T-1000 is in a big tractor trailer, Schwarzenegger Furlong are on this little, uh, or uh, well, it starts off with, I guess, John on his little motorbike. Then, then Schwarzenegger comes around and uh, right. puts him on the motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, so this was obviously a very, very uh, dangerous thing to shoot. And while, while the crew was preparing to film the sequence, they actually realized that their truck was too tall to fit under some of the bridges that it had to pass under. So instead of changing locations, Cameron actually comes up with the idea to just work it into the story. Uh, the truck, they pre-scored the truck so that when it went under one of those overpasses, the top would just slice off and it, it, would basically spend the rest of the chase scene as a convertible. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. And so as with most of the stunt heavy action sequences, several cameras were used to film the sequence, including one that was held by Cameron himself from a motorcycle sidecar. So during this chase sequence, he's in a sidecar. He's like four inches from the ground, you know, during this. I mean, it's, <laughs> if you've ever seen a motorcycle sidecar, it's, it's very, very low and he's, and they're going pretty fast and he's yeah. holding the camera because again he's he's going to put himself in the middle of it 100 percent. yeah 
Uh, and another difficult sequence was actually the final chase scene, which took place on a five mile stretch of highway in San Pedro. To film this sequence, the production had to shut down the highway every night for two weeks. And this is all at night, you know, th that, that last sequence. It's on the way to, you know, the, the steel factory. So before shooting this scene, the production's cabling was stolen and the producers had less than 24 hours to find enough replacement gear to light five miles of road. And then they had to like hire guards to guard it when they weren't there. So that nobody would steal it again. Uh, some nights they couldn't shoot due to the rain. Uh, so they had to shoot some of the footage of Schwarzenegger, Hamilton and Furlong in a, uh, in the SWAT van using what's called the poor man's process. Uh, this is an old school way of shooting car sequences where basically they just parked the car under an overpass while a bunch of grips rocked it back and forth from the outside and the lighting and effects crews would sweep spotlights over it and squibs to kind of give the illusion of of motion yeah you know uh which again that's like i feel like that's the the roger corman stuff kind of coming right oh, very much yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, Cameron, you know, he is notoriously hands-on on his movies. We've talked about this on probably every episode so far where he is not afraid to get in there and hold a camera or paint a piece of the set or do whatever it takes to get it done. Like he's any, any job on the set he could probably do and he will do it if he needs to. Mm. Uh, and I mentioned before that, you know, he, he held the camera in that, that sequence where he was in the motorcycle uh, sidecar uh, and that's it's not unusual for a director to hold a camera for certain scenes, but Cameron would pride himself on getting shots that no other camera operators would get or that shots that other camera operators thought were too dangerous. Mm. Uh, one of those shots was during the freeway sequence uh, in this last this last chase scene where Cameron wanted his Steadicam operator to follow the T-1000's helicopter as it flew under an overpass. His Steadicam operator, a guy named Jimmy Bureau, who he had also worked with Cameron on the abyss. He refused. He's like, I am not shooting that with that helicopter flying that close to me under an overpass that it could very easily crash into and kill us all. Uh, yeah. So Cameron was like, okay, he was undeterred. And he's like, well, I'll do it. You know? So Cameron actually shot that scene himself, like the scene, which is one of the most dangerous stunts I can think of in a movie. Yeah. Like not, not just that. Like I, I even was like reading an interview with Arnold where he says, like, he was talking about despite how tech-heavy the nature of the movie is, he was saying, Schwarzenegger was saying, that he, he worked harder than he's ever seen on emotions. Like, uh, that Cameron was like, he, he this leads into it, because he was saying he was like, he worked hard, uh, uh, he talked us through it more, insisted on rehearsing our reactions, uh, and then he was still doing whatever to get whatever shot he wanted. He was like, we'd be working on like emotions one second. And then all of a sudden there's the scene where the helicopter flies below the underpass. And he saw what the plan was. And he's like, this has to be done twice. So we get the forward <laughs> and rear angles and then he'll, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. Even watching it now, like I watched it again this morning and that entire sequence is incredible because the, yeah. the helicopter goes under then it goes over another bridge later on and it does it in a way where like it cuts it, it pretty close it cuts it really close <laughs> yeah. like it, it, it's like it, it's like the it's like the helicopter pilot pulled up at just the right moment or he was going to crash into that thing yeah it's, it's pretty yeah. rad it's, 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 it's fucking insane but i i also uh literally found an interview with bill paxton around this time talking about cameron and shooting video 
And Bill Paxson tells a story in one interview uh, where he says that he went on a plane ride with Cameron, like where Cameron's piloting. And he said he was tying a camera to the wings of the ultralight plane that they were on. And he said, and in the middle of the flight, he undid his seatbelt so he could get a better grip. And he said he turned the plane straight down, like Bill Paxton said he was in the plane. <laughs> his camera's like, no, we got to get, I want to do this. I want to see what I can do. <laughs> and he said he like put the plane, the camera on the wing of the plane and was like holding it out. And like the plane is pointed straight down. And he said, uh, quote, he goes into a 3,000 foot dive and drops three feet off the deck. Uh, and I go, oh my God, <laughs> what the fuck? And he said he pulls up just in time. And, wow. uh, he said, it, he said, it, 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 he was like, if we'd have gone like another foot game over, man, <laughs> I, I added that part. But, Thanks, uh, Gary. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. He does. He does say, quote, if you're going to hang out with Jim Cameron, you better have life insurance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, but, but for all of that too, by the way, and I know you're going to get into this with like post-production, but uh, I was reading this whole thing about how like Carolco uh or carol co uh it's carol co according to everyone that i've heard say it i, I didn't know yeah. for years how to say it until i was watching behind the scenes on this and that it's uh, apparently carol co carol co uh so around this time somewhere they're they're starting in the you know the 70 million dollar range on their budget and uh uh they uh they apparently went to arnold schwarzenegger for support I don't know if you saw this. <laughs> like they were like, you got to tell him to pull back. <laughs> I didn't see this. No. <laughs> and uh, he they he said that they would come to him and be like, we need your support in toning this back. And he would say, no fucking way. <laughs> like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and he said, he said. Then they'd come back to me like, all right, one sequence. Let's let's stop him from this or something. And he said it was like literally. He was like, let's cut out. Uh, or he said he would get notes from them. And so he was not supportive of them because that's what it was. It was that he was not supportive of them because he knew their vision wasn't right. Because then they would come to him and be like, we need your backing. Cause we're going to cut this scene. And he'd be like, what scene is it? And it was like, uh, and he said, they'd show it to him. And it's like the roadhouse scene where the characters introduced. And he's like, <laughs> and he said he had to like, write the bag and be like, only a fucking studio guy would cut out that scene. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, I mean, you, you do not have my support, uh, and he's like, just let him do what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess since we're talking about like the, um, you know, the, the, these crazy stunts, we probably need to talk about Terminator Two stunt performers. Uh, these guys, you know, they get oh, overshadowed yeah. a lot. We talk, we talk about the guys like Dennis Buren and, and Stan Winston, but you've got to talk about, you've got to acknowledge the stunt performers because that, that helicopter sequence we're talking about. A guy put his life on the line mm-hmm. <laughs> to do that, you know. Yeah. Uh, the stunt coordinator here was Gary Davis. Uh, Gary Davis been around for a long time. T two is probably the biggest thing that he ever worked on. I mean, hell, everyone who worked on this could probably say Terminator Two was the biggest thing right. he ever worked on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but his career goes back to the early seventies, where he worked on films like Race with the Devil. Uh, he later worked on Smoking the Bandit Two, The Lost Boys, Roadhouse, Predator Two. Uh, after Terminator Two, he worked on films like Speed, Independence Day, uh, Escape from L.A. You know, so he's done a lot of stuff. And then you've got Peter Kent. Peter Kent is Arnold's stunt double on this. Uh, he, he, uh, this is the guy who, when you see 
the uh, the motorcycle chase at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. You know that that great jump into the into the L.A. River, uh, which is an insane stunt to do on a motorcycle. Uh, that's Peter Kent. Peter Kent's ah. the guy on the motor. He's he's the guy doing all those big stunts for Arnold. And and you can tell it's not Arnold if you're really looking for it. Yeah. Uh, but he looks a lot like him, honestly. Uh, but he also he he's done he's doubled for Arnold and a lot of stuff, including Terminator 2 3D Battle Across Time from like Universal Studios, you know. Oh uh, yeah. And, and he also he also did it in the um remember the Terminator 2 arcade game? Oh like, yeah, I love yeah. that game. He, he 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 played the T eight hundred in that. It's not actually Arnold doing it; it's Peter Kent. Oh, so, weird. <laughs> I just can't let I can't let this episode go by without acknowledging these guys because we always try to acknowledge guys like the stunt performers, the uh, you know even the costume designers, production designers, people that are in the positions that the, the the jobs on films that don't get talked about as much. But stunt performers literally put their lives on the line. Can I'm I all actually, for. Can- can I shout out one more stunt performer? Yeah, actually. please do. Um, yeah. So uh, I ran across this guy while I was doing uh, Who Am I Trekking With? And his name is Mick Rogers. And he plays uh, uncredited policeman. But he was the winner of a Technical Achievement Award at the 2002 Oscars for the concept, design, and realization of the Mick rig. Uh, and he shared that with Matt Sweeney. He's also the winner of uh, SAG's Outstanding Action Performance by a stunt ensemble and a motion picture for Hacksaw Ridge in 2016 Clint and Eastwood. was nominated for SAG's Mel outstanding- Gibson, not Clint Eastwood. Hacksaw Ridge? <laughs> Hacksaw yeah. Ridge. Wasn't that Mel Gibson? Uh, with, with Andrew Garfield, right? Yeah, it's the one with Andrew Garfield. Yeah, that's oh, what was I thinking of? I don't know. Heartbreak Ridge? Uh, probably. <laughs> but he was also nominated for SAG's Outstanding Performance by a Stunt Ensemble and a Motion Picture for Iron Man as well back in 2008. Wow, very cool. And uh, he also won the Taurus Award at the 2002 World Stunt Awards for Best Stunt Coordinator and or Second Unit Director for the feature film. And I thought you would enjoy this, uh, Gary and Justin, uh, for the feature film the fast and the furious in 2001. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah I mean, the, the beginning of the world's greatest movie franchise yeah exactly. <laughs> there you go <laughs> exactly ah <sighs> man well one day we'll do a fast and the furious uh series, the whole series. oh it's i think coming. we yeah, yeah. i think i think we should just do a series on that if, if, if there's guys, ever a movie got- franchise that deserves this sway like like moving away from directors for a minute to talk about just the franchise of the film series <laughs> yeah, absolutely and furious i agree you guys, you guys were kind you. enough to cover the batman trilogy for me so i i we have to do fast and we furious gotta wait till sure. all 11 of them are out and then we will spend <laughs> half a year half a year on the fast and furious franchise for yeah, what it's it, worth it, yeah i also am in full support of our, our first like complete actor series to just be vin diesel but that's a whole <laughs> <topic>. <laughs> so as usual on a james cameron film once the once terminator 2 entered the editing phase he had even more battles to be fought uh once again as it had been on the abyss, the ending of Terminator 2 was an issue. Uh, the original ending of Terminator 2 cut to many years in the future where we see Linda, Linda Hamilton in old age makeup having prevented Judgment Day. She watches as John, who is now a senator. He plays on the playground with his daughter. Now, I'm, I'm sure 
Gary will be glad to point out that this scene makes no goddamn logical sense because if Sarah <laughs> prevented the war, then how did she might meet Kyle Reese? How was John born? It did this scene. Man, I'm not trying exist. to just I'm just trying to have a good time and pretend any of this makes sense. Um, but but I will I, I will throw this in there uh, from one of the commentaries with Cameron. Uh, I know exactly why he did this because he he says in passing in something I saw that he admits he he likes to show people at different stages in their life because it makes it feel more epic. Like that's literally what he said. He was just like. It just makes it feel more epic when you show people like this impacting their whole life. So like, oh, oh it was it was in the commentary because he talks about showing in T2 showing John Connor at the beginning of the movie. Sure. Yeah. Like, Which I'm fine war. with. That. Yeah. And and so he and he even says like, well, uh, you know, so like Titanic, not that I've seen it, but he's like, like Titanic, you got the bookends with the old yeah. lady. Sure. <laughs> he's like, it just makes it feel more epic to have like the story resonate throughout generations i mean i guess i get that but this ending uh i i watched the actually watched the director's cut today or the special edition whatever you want to call it and i thought that this scene had been restored in the director's cut but the version that i rented today had all the other scenes that had been restored but this was not in there but i did i was able to watch it on youtube and i'd seen it before uh, many times in the past and it feels uh, the fact that it's not even on the director's cut that's been released, at least not the one that I rented on Voodoo today, makes me think that even Cameron realized that it didn't quite work because it's yeah. it's very uh, it feels very tonally different from the rest yeah. of the film, much like the wave sequence in the Abyss. How it feels like it's from a different movie, you know? It just it's just very weird from a tone standpoint. Like it's it's a you get like whiplash uh, because very it, much and yeah. the, and the fashions of the people and the the future fashions of the people are really goofy. Yeah. But also you've got like Sarah Connor who is this a fucking warrior, you know, and now she's just like a grandma, you know, sitting on a bench. <laughs> like it's yeah, it's very, it's very weird. It's a very weird way to end the movie. And I think for as much as they spent, uh, you know, time wise and financially to make the T-1000 look as good as it does, that old age makeup not on great. Linda Hamilton is yeah. terrible. Old age makeup's really hard to it's do, though. It's tough, yeah. It's really hard to do because you know what the person looks like, and you you inherently know that they're under makeup. Right. So, like, it's very, very difficult to do old age makeup. No old age makeup will ever be as bad as Guy Pierce and Prometheus. Uh, <laughs> that is the worst old age makeup that's, I've ever seen. That's fair. <laughs> um, I, I will say this, too, uh, for what it's worth. I mean, if there was ever a character in a film series that's not going to make it to grandma level, it's Sarah Connor. Right. She's a fucking nut job who, like, goes all in, like, starting yeah. war. And then in, in Terminator 3 they established that she died in 1997, I believe. Uh, although she comes back in Terminator Dark Fate, and I don't recall how that actually happens. I, I haven't know. seen any of those. So <laughs> you I haven't mean, seen Terminator 3? Uh, no, I... Well, when it Dark came Fate. out in theaters, and yeah. I've never seen Dark Fate. I've never... Uh, yeah, I don't I don't recall. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember how they explained that, because I've only seen it the one I time. saw Salvation when it came out in theaters, and then I just stopped. So... Yeah, that's probably um, a good, good call. <laughs> after seeing salvation i would have stopped too but we can talk about the sequels at the end of this but yeah, yeah I, I don't i don't know much about them yeah. so i can't tell well, you much beyond two 
Well, so when when this movie was completed, Carol Co. demanded a test screening, a process that Cameron hated after the abyss, because remember, that's what caused him to make all the changes to the end of the abyss. Uh, and when the screening took place, there was a consensus among the crowd, and that was that they hated this ending that was set in the future. Everyone hated it. So Cameron reluctantly gave in, and he added a new final scene. Wait, let me just say, too, uh, the story I read said that uh, Carol Co. demanded a screening Casser flew to George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch in a helicopter through a storm, and it was delayed. And Karen started the screening without him. <laughs> Afterward, he snatched up all the preview cards and refused to show anything to Casser. Anything that <laughs> said, but the viewers all still said the same thing. Yeah, lose the ending, and finally, that's what made him relent. He was like, "Fine, yeah. fuck it." Uh, I mean, when everyone's saying, "Don't do this." Maybe you should listen. Yeah. But afterwards, <laughs> like for anything else they had to do, it still spawned another crew t-shirt, apparently, uh, yeah. that uh, said Terminator 3, not with me. <laughs> <laughs> I want that shirt, honestly, because I feel that way about Terminator 3. Yeah. <laughs> so in the published version of the Terminator 2 script, Cameron discussed his logic in his introduction saying, quote, we decided not to tie it all up with a bow, but to suggest that the struggle was ongoing and, in fact, might even be an, an unending one for us flawed creatures trying to come to terms with technology and our own violent demons. Mm -hmm. So this new ending showed a stretch of highway at night. It's actually the same shot you see when they're pulling up to the Cyberdyne building at the end where you see the highway and then it pans up to show Cyberdyne. Oh, it's, yeah. the, it's the exact same footage. And Cameron had like like three, two or three days to write this new scene, this voiceover and figure out how to do it. And they didn't have time to shoot anything else because the movie was about to come out. So mm -hmm. he used, he used footage he already had. And then he, he sent like the script. He dictated it actually to Linda Hamilton over the phone. She recorded it and sent it back via like T one, which was like the height of internet technology at the time. Uh, nice. <laughs> and that's how they ended up getting it. Like with, with like days to spare, you know, before the movie is supposed to come out and her, her, uh, it, final voiceover says the unknown, unknown future rolls toward us i face it for the first time with a sense of hope because if a machine a terminator can learn the value of human life maybe we can too and i think this new ending is a pretty good compromise Speaking to Newsweek a few months before the movie was released, Cameron described Terminator 2 as a violent movie about peace. He said, quote, this is a, an, he said it is a, uh, an action film about the value of human life. And this new ending still supported that nonviolent message. You know, mm -hmm. like it's funny because we talked about this on The Abyss, too, but it, that the ending of that is sort of very, very optimistic. And the ending of this is very optimistic as well. Yeah. But I think the way I think doing it in the theatrical cut, like the version with with just that little bit of voiceover, it gets the point across in a way that is way less jarring for the audience than cutting to this scene of old Linda Hamilton, Grandma, yeah. Grandma Sarah Connor. Yeah, it, it's tough to, to uh, you know, like I, ha I hate it for you, Jim, but it, it is true. Uh, it's it's and even in the early stuff, I don't think I even hit on as much with like John Connor's character, like how much he expected that not only was it about John Connor teaching a Terminator humanity, it was also that his mom was have go has has become this thing, or become this other person that uh, he 
he's like stepping in to help her step back from becoming a machine about what she's doing yeah, with yeah. everything and, yeah, absolutely. and realize her humanity. And so there's like this, like this child is supposed to be like bonding these two things together to show like there's this like what what humanity and morality really is and, yeah. and that sort of thing. So well, to take it a step further, I mean, they always say your protagonist is your one who goes through the biggest change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this movie, I mean, John Connor's at an age where it's just he's not really changing. He's just he's experiencing this. We see a lot. He's the Greek chorus. We're seeing a lot of this through his eyes, especially sure. if you didn't see the first one. Mm-hmm. But in terms of characters who go through the biggest change, it's it's Sarah. Sarah it is, Connor. Yeah. Yeah, and um, that takes the title and sort of shifts it a little bit. She's actually the Terminator. Yeah. So I, 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 it's pretty cool. So as he had done on the abyss, uh, Cameron had a chance to release a special edition version of Terminator two. When the film was released on VHS and laser disc in 1993, uh, the special edition restored about 15 minutes of footage, including uh, that original ending uh, also restored was the dream sequence with Michael Bean returning as Kyle Reese. Uh, most of the other scenes are small short scenes that give us a bit more time with the characters, uh, but none are really necessary to the plot. Although I, I kind of had the same relationship with this as I do with some of his other extended versions that the, some of these scenes I think are integral to the film and to character development. One of the most integral ones is one where they reprogram a, a chip that's in the Terminator's head. They do like surgery and pull this chip out and reprogram it. And that yeah. kind of explains how he starts to become more human and start to learn how to be human in the latter part of the film. And that got, that got cut out of the original film. And I think that from a plot standpoint, from a character development standpoint, it explains why he acts the way he does later on in the film. Uh, one of my favorite moments from Terminator 2 is actually one of the restored scenes. And it's the one where John Connor is trying to teach the Terminator how to smile, you know, and he makes this really weird, awkward smile. They cut that out of the original movie, but I think it's a great little character moment. Uh, And there's a lot of great little character moments in the special edition that I think are really good. I I do think that the pacing of the theatrical version is better because it's, it's a chase film. Terminator 2 is a chase film from the moment that John Connor's at the mall till the steel factory at the end. It is a chase with very few moments of pause, mm. you know, and uh, you have to keep that momentum, you know? And so some of these moments kind of stop that momentum a little bit, but from a character standpoint, I do think that they, they add a lot to the film. The, the, the exception is the ending, which I think is, terrible the the future ending i think is really bad so i was actually really kind of thrilled when i rented the director's cut today because my my 4k disc of it doesn't have only has the theatrical and i i rented the the director's cut and i was expecting it to end in that future scene and it didn't so i was like oh good this is a better this (laughs) this is like the version of the movie this is like it's got all the other stuff including the dream sequence which i think is really good because it uh kind of speaks to sarah's psychological state oh you know uh just like the other dream sequence that we that is in the theatrical cut where she sees judgment day you know but without that garbage ending and i think it works really well i i really do i I think overall i prefer that director's cut i would say yeah i'd 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 be on board with that the one i watched had the had the old sarah ending did it uh, yeah just 
I, I don't think I'd ever seen it before. And oh, I yeah. think I, I think I hit play without realizing that that was what was in it. Yeah. So when it came up, I was, I was completely thrown off. I was just like, Oh, this sucks. Yeah, it sucks. It does. <laughs> and, but in the version I watched today, and I didn't even know this existed, but it has every other scene, but then the ending is still that black, that black top highway. Yeah. Which I'm like, that's, that's the version of the movie right there. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So when do we get into the part about how, uh, it doesn't make any fucking sense. Well, right fucking now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just sitting here. I was listening to you guys debate this ending, and I'm like, well, okay, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I, I think the blacktop, uh, it's, you know, who who I was, oh, God, what was I reading? Oh, back when we talked about aliens, Devin Faraci, he wrote, he, he says that aliens killed the alien franchise. Like, he... He talks about how, you know, that, 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 like, it's a good movie on its own, but as far as the franchise or as far as, or it destroyed the xenomorph, I forget his exact words, but it's just basically like they don't, they're not as special and they're not as, as scary as they were. Yeah. yeah it it kind of ruins the xenomorph. And I can accept, I can almost accept like that in Terminator that. Although everything happens the way it happens and blah, blah, blah. It, it's still, everything still closes out the loop. Like it works so that at the end you're like, all right, John Connor will still be born and there still will be judgment day. <laughs> and all Well, that all that means uh, is, that, that, is that they didn't stop anything. Yeah. You didn't stop anything. Well, you can't have stopped anything. That's my point. You yeah. can't have stopped anything or None of this fucking happened. Right. And so, or they're sending it to an alternate timeline, which why would a machine give a fuck about an alternate timeline? <laughs> so it's thinking that this is the same timeline. And so this was the first movie in my life. I remember watching as a kid in the theater, seeing this movie and being like blown away by how beautiful this whole movie was and loving it so much, but also walking out of the theater saying, Wait a minute. Arnold just killed himself because there's still one chip left and it's right here in my fucking forehead and I'll kill myself. And that's it. Then we stopped it. Well, if you fucking stopped it, where did you come from? And where did John Connor come from? Because Kyle Reese came from that future. Where did any of this bullshit happen? If that doesn't still happen. Can I tell you the best argument against what you're saying? Sure. Terminator three. They didn't stop it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, they still didn't stop it. So, they thought they thought they stopped it at the end of assuming Terminator. Assuming it had ended in Terminator 2, <laughs> which James Cameron was done, and they assumed they'd wrap this thing up. Nice little bow on the package. Uh no, you didn't. No, because nothing changed. Nothing changed. Still the fucking terminators exist. You know they exist, so this future still happens. You, you've done nothing, Sarah Connor and John Connor. I think this is where we insert the Ant-Man speech from Endgame of him sort of explain or getting time travel explained. I think this is the part where we insert our um, the baby crying that we do on the somebody needs a nap sequence. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think Gary needs a nap. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I get what you're saying, Gary. I mean, you're right. From a logical standpoint, it doesn't make sense. Um, 
but this movie is so goddamn good that I don't care. That there, <laughs> that's that's the truth of it. I don't I don't care, and I can think of that stuff while I'm watching it. But I'm having such a good time with it that I can overlook the the logical time travel paradox. Listen, I spent this whole time, however long this has been, talking about all the cool stuff, and I love it, and I, and I love the movie. I, I still love the movie. Uh, I just I'm just saying, it just. We get it. You, you fuck with time travel. It just never makes any fucking sense. I know. Nobody can ever make it make sense. Nobody can do it. Except for Primer. Uh, Primer just... And time crimes, probably. They get so complicated that you're like, I, I guess. I guess this is right. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to tell you that it's not. This probably this probably works. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Terminator's not as interested in that. Terminator's no. just making an action movie, so I appreciate it as an action movie. It's just yeah. like, god dang, like really? It's just, I guess it just pr- probably because it was also a huge heartbreak for me to have to see Arnold with his fucking thumb up in the air go down in the lava pit, mm. and uh, you know, it's like, why, why did that have to happen? And you're like, oh, because he's saving us from that future. And then you start to think about it, you're like, no, he didn't. He didn't. It didn't have to happen because that future is going to have happen anyway. So his death was pointless. Killing Arnold, the most advanced Terminator that's ever lived. A Terminator. Um, well, the T one thousand is the most. Yeah, but emotionally. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm glad. I'm glad that we gave you this forum, Gary, because I was definitely going to pause at some point and just let you rant about the time travel stuff. So I'm glad you took it upon yourself. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I was just, I don't know, the more I thought about it, I was like, this has to get in here. I got to say something. I got to say it. This doesn't make fucking sense. (laughs) Gary's eye is twitching. Why in James Cameron's life and all the scientific bullshit he delves into, does he not think for a second about goddamn time travel? I think he probably did and figured that most people wouldn't care. Which is the case. <laughs> all right. Anyway. Uh, so when all was said and done, the final budget of Terminator 2 was somewhere in the range of 70 to 75 million. But with the cost of locking in the talent and securing the rights to the franchise, Carol Co. spent over $100 million on this film, making it the most expensive film in history. And this is only the first uh, most expensive movie ever made that James Cameron is going to release. <laughs> uh, when the film is just theaters, his theme now, that's a, that's what he does. Uh, but when the film was hit theaters in July of 1991, Cameron's perfectionism and dictatorial shooting style were once again justified. Uh, that opening weekend, more than half of the movie tickets sold in North America were for Terminator 2. Think about that. That is insane. That is insane. It would go on to earn more than $200 million in the U.S. alone, which in 1991 is unheard of. Uh, It earned more than $500 million worldwide. At the time of its release, uh, I mentioned this in our intro, but it was the third highest grossing movie of all time, right behind Star Wars and E.T. That's how big this movie was. Uh, The only movies that had ever that had made more money than this were Star Wars and E.T., Critical reviews were almost unanimously positive. Uh, although, uh, Gary, I sent you an article, a, a, a magazine, an essay, I would say, uh, written a few years after. It wasn't at the time of release, but written about six years after the release of Terminator 2 uh, by uh, a guy you may have heard of named David Foster Wallace uh, that was not positive. Did you have a chance to read that, Gary? I read, yeah, he, he just... <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I'm going to read he a little was, bit. He was pissed off about everything i didn't even care about yeah uh because i would i would like to point out i just incredibly pretentious article i mean it's david foster wallace so it's one of the most pretentious men to ever live Uh, listen i'm (laughs) upset about the time travel and that's my own problem and i understand that uh but at the end of the day uh 500 million dollars in 1992 i just did this on the inflation calculator he he made like one billion forty one million six hundred eighty. Yeah. That's, That's some yeah. Avengers shit. That's some Avengers shit right there. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I, the, the David Foster Wallace article, and I'll, I'll try to remember to put this on like our Twitter and stuff so that other people can read it. Uh, but I'm just gonna read a little blurb from it. Okay. Uh, this is the opening paragraph. Actually, it says. Quote, 1990s moviegoers who have sat clutching their heads in both awe and disappointment at movies like Twister and Volcano and The Lost World can thank James Cameron's Terminator 2 Judgment Day for inaugurating what's become this decade's special new genre of big budget film, special effects porn. Porn because if you substitute FX for intercourse, the parallels between the two genres become so obvious they're eerie. Just like hardcore cheapies, movies like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park aren't really movies in the standard sense at all. What they really are is half a dozen or so isolated, spectacular scenes, scenes comprising maybe 20 or 30 minutes of riveting, sensuous payoffs, strung together via another 60 to 90 minutes of flat, dead, and often hilariously insipid narrative. He goes on to say (laughs) that... Yeah, yeah. He goes on to say, uh, T2 as a dramatic narrative is slick and cliche and calculating and in some an appalling betrayal of 1984's The Terminator. Uh, This entire article is like will make your like the veins pop out on your forehead (laughs) (laughs) and i'll I'll send it to you guys i mean i sent it to gary i'll send it to you todd if you want to read it but i'll post it on our twitter and stuff and our facebook he sent it to me it would say uh this guy needs a nap i said yeah i said (laughs) i said i sent gary the link and it just said david foster wallace needs a nap (laughs) so uh, anyway i feel like that's a good segue into other individuals who probably need a nap but maybe aren't as um Good at writing, probably, as David Foster Wallace. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, obviously, I need a nap. That David Foster Wallace, or whatever his fucking name is. Uh, you know, you know who David Foster Wallace is, right? No. Who is that? David is a very, um, very famous um, novelist. Okay. <laughs> I was like, why did I just think of that name all of a sudden? <laughs> yeah. They, they, he wrote that. Infinite Infinite Jest. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah that. Yeah, I mean, he's, he died. He died in uh, 10, 12 years ago, probably. I don't know. He, I think he committed suicide. But yeah, Infinite Jest is like the most well known of his work. But and it's yes. like a, a super huge book. And uh, Infinite Jest is over a thousand pages. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember a girl I worked with reading. Sounds that infinite. Because yeah. the dude she was dating was super into it or something. Yeah. But anyway, all those people need a nap. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I'm happy to say though that whoever the, the guy was, I just wipe him out of my brain that you just said that disturbed me with his special effects porn article. Uh, nobody is as well written as him for their uh, David Foster Wallace, the guy we just spent two minutes talking about. Yeah, what, uh, was it the same guy? It's the same guy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just piecing this together. Holy shit, that guy. 
Well, fuck him all the way around. <laughs> um, well, he's, well, he's he's passed away. Yeah. So. Well, necrophilia, I guess. Oh, wow. to be fair, just side note story, uh, just in the middle of this episode for anybody that can appreciate it. The other day I was like super tired and I was like super tired for like two weeks straight all the oh, time. Sounds like COVID. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I told Jen, we were like, she was like, why are you so sleepy all the time? Right. To, right now. And I was like, I think I've got narcolepsy. Mm. <laughs> and uh, No, no, no. I'm sorry. That's what I should have said. What I said was, I think I've got necrophilia. Oh, no. <laughs> but much bigger news. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, that will tire you out. <laughs> she was like, and it connects back to David Foster Wallace. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I have necrophilia. You, you, know, know, I've right been, you know, I've been, I've been sneaking out a lot at night and creating <laughs> graveyards. Oh, my God. Anyway. 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 Not the right word was the point. Uh, yeah. Here's Grady gave it a half star on Letterboxd. Says uh, this movie sucks. The kid's annoying. Action is boring. Premise sucks so much. I can't stress enough how much it dis- I dislike watching and skipping through this movie. That was the. Uh, I can't even pronounce this person's username. Uh, gave it a half star. Said started watching it on Pluto, but it was the Spanish version, so I turned it off. I'm racist. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> I just enjoyed that one. Uh, half star from Jimmy who says watching this movie was the equivalent of feeling of the feeling when you take a dump and then you find out you don't have toilet paper. <laughs> uh, here's Jeff. Uh, worst sequel ever. He says uh, it was such a shame to see a sequel as lame as this made for one of the better sci-fi movies of all time. Sure, the effects, particularly the T-1000, were brilliant for their time and worth seeing the movie for, but special effects do not a great film film make. And just about everything else in this film was average to very poor. The, quote, acting, the inclusion of a child as the main character, the story, all of it, it's all lame. There is something wrong with this film being at a higher spot than its prequel. Prequel? Yeah. Uh, Terminator Salvation. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one they're talking about. Uh, Jesse James Cowboy 3 says, not worth watching. Not only does it have the worst acting I've ever seen in a movie in a long time, the visual effects are so horrible nowadays. How could they want, how could they have won awards for editing? What do you mean nominated when almost every window that gets broken breaks or explodes before anything gets near it? This movie has the worst green screen visual effects. How bad were all the other movies the year before this to win so many Oscars? I don't think they know what editing is. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think they know what that means. Uh, Quadrophedia says dull. I like the first one, but this one was meh. John O'Connor. John I just, O'Connor. <laughs> I just wanted the Terminator to turn around and say, you know what? I have thought instead of not killing one, I've changed my mind and you're first. He's annoying. John O'Connor. John O'Connor. That's a very different movie. Yeah, I want Arnold to quote that. <laughs> well, well Janelle, Janelle and Todd are dicks. But I got John O'Connor. <laughs> What's wrong with her? She's never this nice. You know what? I it's actually the best accent you've ever done, Todd. Available <laughs> for parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate events. Oh God, oh, man! If I ever, if I ever make a new Leprechaun movie, we're calling you, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, thanks. <laughs> Half star from Funny Bear, who says, this is my least favorite film of all time. Wow. Of this all time. Film. <laughs> this film is an absolute dumpster fire and an embarrassment to the absolutely incredible movie that the first one was. Everything the first one did well, this piece of shit fucked that up. Perhaps one day Ooh. I'll go back and watch it just to give it another chance. Then I'll properly expand on all of what makes this absolute flaming piece of dog shit. But until then, I fucking hate this movie. What do you think that person thinks about the following sequels? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if this is their least favorite movie of all time. <laughs> one star from Nibblewig. This movie sucks. You just like it because you saw it when you were 12. I was nine. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, one star uh, here from I love Matt, Matt Matterate. I don't know. Why did the robot have a massive dog? Is there... did, did we see his dog? Oh, I mean, I, we see the people like the ladies in the um, in the biker bar, like looking down at it, like, hey, you know, but we don't <laughs> see it. We don't see it. Yeah. Demi gave it one star and said, I found this whole movie to not give answers or have much meaning. However, my boyfriend told me that the kid taught the Terminator how to, how to be human, which is something I have to pick up on. Wow, you're <laughs> not paying attention to the movie. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> this is disturbing because it says it's from uh, the Bone Master. Oh, um, wow. Speaking of, speaking of porn. <laughs> yeah, it says it's from the Bone Master, but I think it also might be my wife. It's weird. Uh, zero, <laughs> zero out of ten, the dog dies. Uh, yeah, but only in the only in the director's cut. <laughs> uh, and I, I saved this one for last just because this one just confounds. Uh, Patrick Starr, January 20th 2022 right wait 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 we've had a review from patrick star before have we recently maybe on the first terminator maybe which i assume is spongebob's best friend right (laughs) maybe maybe that makes sense january 20th 2022 so this is recent as we're recording this you know as far as reviews go half star the only thing he said was the only sequel i've ever seen that might be as bad as the empire strikes back God damn it. Whoa. <laughs> that guy, he's just trolling. There's no oh. way. <laughs> that guy is just trolling. There's no way he means that. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh those those people needed that. Wow. So uh, what at least one or two of those mentioned the acting and or or John Connor specifically. What do you guys think about Eddie Furlong in this movie? Uh, I think he serves his purpose. He's he's obviously <laughs> obviously he's uh yeah. Yeah. I, look, you've got a child actor who's never acted before. Yeah. So, yeah, he's not going to come across. I mean, he's he's got that certain something that they were able to pick up on. They uh, yeah, were able absolutely. to very quickly polish and refine it to look OK. But at the end of the day, like he's inexperienced. He's, yeah, he's inexperienced and he's up. He's, you know, up against uh, some pretty uh, big. Is it the biggest spotlight? most yeah. people could yeah. ever fucking have I, yeah <laughs> I, I honestly think i think his performance I, I think it's uneven i think there are some scenes where he's very very good mm. uh and you can yeah. definitely see what cameron and his his casting director thought what they saw in him there are other scenes where he his line readings are not great or or he like he speaks the next line too quickly which is a, a you know 
part of that experience. But like, for instance, the scene where they go to Miles Dyson's house and he's kind of consoling his mom where she's like, did, you know, did you come here to stop me? And, you know, he's really good in that yeah. scene. And there's a lot of scenes that he's really good. And there are other scenes where he's not great in. But I think a lot of those scenes, the, the ones that he's not great in aren't necessarily his fault i think some of his dialogue as written yeah. are a, is a little cringy it, it's mm-hmm. it's um in a large part i think it's because cameron and bill wisher write his some of his like cool kid dialogue as if they've never met a child before and are there <laughs> yeah. and their only frame of reference was bart simpson <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that sounds about right yeah no problemo like nobody fucking says that like <laughs> it's like i don't know there's something about it that's like it feels very much like a 35 year old man writing for a 10 year old you gotta yeah. stay hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, like, like anybody's <laughs> ever fucking said that before. Right. At this point. <laughs> exactly. Like exactly. even Spanish-speaking people. <laughs> like, right. uh, That's so I not think, like a thing they just normally say. Right. So, but I think that like there are scenes where he's very, very good. I think, uh, and it's kind of a shame that his career ne- didn't go a lot many places past this i mean he did pet cemetery too i think right after this he obviously does like the crow later on pecker pecker's really good john waters pecker american history x um but yeah yeah, american history x is he's really good in that but i I of course he's also had some substance abuse problems and things like that in in this movie uh just see a since we're talking about him, I mean, he ended up in a relationship with the 29 year old woman who was his onset tutor, uh, during the filming of this film. Yeah. Wait, uh, wait, what? (laughs) Oh yeah. This is hundred percent true. (laughs) Yeah. He ended up in a, uh, a relationship with the 29 year old woman who was his onset tutor during this movie. Uh, she, that'll fuck a kid up. She eventually became his manager. Uh, and, uh, of course, he starred in all the movies we're talking about, including some other not so great choices that she helped uh, that process on. Um, she He got engaged to her and then they split up. Uh, she sued him uh, for money she thought he owed him for being his manager. Uh, also claimed he was physically abusive. Uh, also, during this process, he was highly uh on heroin and cocaine and yeah alcoholism mm-hmm. and um ever furlong is a whole other thing uh but yeah there was there was some you know he'd already been a troubled yeah he had, he, had a tr- he had a tough upbringing yeah. it never stopped it doesn't help that he is like our age now and still somehow looks like he is sort of he's like a mixed up 15 year old yeah and, and mm. it's uh and I, I mean that with all the love and respect, Eddie. I know you're listening to this. I just mean hey, I, a, a very young face. I would uh, like for him to, I mean, I would love to see a, like a rental. I would love for him to get his shit together because I, I think he has potential to be really good because some of the stuff I've seen him in is very good. You know, I, I we, you mentioned oh, American oh, History X. He's in American History X. Detroit Rock movie. City. I, I yeah. will always go to bat for that movie. I think that movie's a blast. That's a fun you know? movie. It's a fun movie. Like he has, I mean, granted, that movie was. 20 some odd years old at this point but Dude, i think he's he's, he's a, the, these child stars are like i mean these youngs you know i mean i get well he he was a child star yeah i yeah, mean yeah, these yeah. people are 
That's a tough process, man. It's tough because it's so it's many very, people don't make it out of that. Yeah, and he he's one of unfortunately he seems to be one of the 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 non success stories. Not that he, I mean, he's still working, but he's you know if you look at his IMDb, it's all like kind of a direct video, you know, not not great Star stuff. Trek web series, right? Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's tough, and and I mean, and and that's I mean that's Hollywood, man. That's yeah. it'll fuck you up. It'll and, chew you up and spit you out. Yeah, um, if you if you don't have somebody looking over you and looking for your out for your best interest, which it didn't sound age. like this dude he had. Did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I will say that when I was a kid watching this movie, so I saw this movie when I was, like I said, nine years old. I saw it in the summer of 1991. Uh, first R-rated movie I ever saw in the movie theater. Uh, I saw it before I ever saw the first Terminator movie. Uh, my dad took me to see it, and I was immediately obsessed. I mean, I, I will say this movie is the first movie I ever remember seeing and thinking, how did they do that? Like, it's the movie that made me wonder how movies were made. In fact, I would say this podcast wouldn't exist if it were not for the curiosity in my brain that was spawned by Terminator 2. This is the movie that made me wonder about how movies got made. Before that, it was all like, they just existed. But Mm -hmm. with this, it was like, how did they pull this off? What is going on? Like, it blew my mind, right? Mm -hmm. And honestly, John Connor, when I was a kid, I thought was the coolest fucking dude. Because I I was was going to a conservative Christian elementary school uh, where nobody talked like John Connor. Nobody wore public enemy t-shirts and listened to Guns N' Roses. Uh, Most (laughs) of the kids that I I went to school with would not, not have been allowed to see this movie, you know? So now, or when I was, when then, I you know, I was watching this, I just thought, like I remember going to school the the like I, I probably saw this on a weekend and going to school on like Monday morning and telling all my friends about it and reenacting scenes uh and, and most of them being John Connor scenes where he's like, You're calling moi a dipshit, you know? Oh, but I wouldn't say dipshit, I would like say, you know, dip S word or whatever dumb dip kids. <laughs> <laughs> like like the version I, I was allowed to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if, even if you were in like a conservative school, like I was in public school during this time. And and I can say for sure, like, I mean, as much shit as I'm, I'm talking right now, um, this movie worked for kids my age, like it and girls had Eddie Furlong pictures plastered all over their fucking, uh, you know, uh, binders, their, their lockers. And, uh, I was going to say their, uh, what's, what's it called? The The trapper keepers, the trapper keepers and, uh, (laughs) you know, their binders and such that they used. Um, no, no. Eddie Furlong was a heartthrob. He was like tiger beat. He was tiger beat. You know, like he was, he was the dude. Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, all the crap we're giving him for like the things he said i mean it worked for our age at the time yeah for sure mm-hmm. absolutely i mean and and watching it this time i i you know in the past i've thought yeah he was not that good in it but he's actually very good in most of the movie there are just some some dialogue scenes here and there where he, did, he he's not great and they probably could have you know if he had been a little bit more experienced, he could have pulled it off. But the movie overall, obviously, is is not really hurt by that, despite what some of those people in the reviews you, you read said. Uh, here's the thing. 
James Cameron knows how to make a fucking sequel. He, he proved it with Aliens, uh, where he took Ridley Scott's concept and put his own stamp on it. He turned Aliens into a James Cameron movie. Uh, so while that, that film is tonally very different from the original, he still peppered in scenes uh, of that kind of claustrophobic horror that you were used to from the first movie. Uh, the one that comes to mind is the one where Ripley and Neuter in the lab and the face hugger comes in. You know, that, that feels very much like oh. a scene from the Ridley Scott movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that to me is what a great sequel is. It's a movie that acknowledges the original film, but isn't beholden to it in a way that it makes you feel like you're just seeing a rehash. It, it continues the story. And, yeah. you know, it, well, it, it, clearly James Cameron is like, concerned with world building like he yes. loves like building I mean, that's that's what he's doing with all of this five avatar movies you know right <laughs> right like he loves building these like alternate mm-hmm. uh realities that somehow connect back to our own that like represent all the lessons we should learn i mean i feel like that's like his thing right the second yeah um mm-hmm. well i mean he he's you know he'll have his, his moments here i don't know if we can do that with true lies but well i mean he's, he's world guys, building where jamie lee curtis d- does strip teases listen <laughs> listen young young justin bishop that, that jamie lee curtis strip tease scene was integral Ooh, to my yeah. upbringing mm-hmm. I, I, i'm not arguing that i'm just saying we'll talk about that next justify that as far as world building goes yeah. but built my world maybe, i'll tell you the that. world would be a better place <laughs> if, if more of that but uh, so you guys grew up with this movie though right with terminator 2 oh yes uh, i mean yeah yeah i mean this gary is, you're, you're this my another tv viewing for me yeah, for sure yeah. well you're a couple years younger than us so yeah uh, you you would have been probably far too young to see. you would have been like six years old when it came out right yeah, right yeah <laughs> i swear to god like i remember this being as big as like like as far as like quintessential like huge fucking movies so this would have been before jurassic park right mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, two years earlier jurassic park would have been in that thought but like before that i mean i it would have had to have been this and like batman if you're you talking know, about like movies that made me a movie buff, right, right, they, they're like huge. This is this is on like this is the Mount Rushmore childhood. Yeah, this yeah. is one. This is my Mount Rushmore of movies. As far not not necessarily meaning it's in, like in my top five movies, although it's probably in my top five movies or at least top ten. <laughs> uh, but like movies that don't made put me, on airs, Justin. M- movies that made me like fall in love with movies right uh, movies Terminator that, like, 2, I mean, Jurassic like, Park. I know it, it sounds cliche or, or or maybe like hyperbole or whatever uh the world fucking stopped for this movie like yeah. this movie was like a huge it was a, it was a phenomenon huge, it was a yeah. universal thing like like a legitimate phenomenon right well and, and this time you know when James Cameron's doing this He's doing the same thing he did with Aliens, where he's building on the previous story, but he's doing it with his own story. Uh, and he's doing it by introducing elements of the original film, like the Brad Fidel score in this, which we, we t- joked about at the beginning of the show, but it's iconic, but it also links this to the first film. Yeah. So that it, it, it establishes this as a continuation of that story. And then there are also okay. like things like the uh, like the Terminator's entrances, you know, which m- very much mirror Arnold's entrance in the original film. Mm-hmm. But here he's, of course, not working on that scrappy Roger Corman budget. That's six million dollars that he's, you know, had for Terminator. Uh, by, by this time, Cameron o- owns Hollywood. 
I mean, he is literally making the biggest movie that's ever been made. Uh, but it still feels like Eternal, a, a Terminator movie, even if it's totally very different from the first film. And I oh, think it, it built like a whole mythology. Like it, it, yeah. it took that. Yeah. I mean, that first movie was great. And, and, and I could still argue with it being as great as this movie in its own way. But it took what little bit of a piece of a mythology you could have built off the first one into like creating like a, well, the fucking franchise. Like it right. right. yeah. created like a whole world of possibilities. Yeah, yeah. And your your first indication in this one, I think that he's doing something a little bit different this time around. And I I had never really thought about this before watching it this time, but it's the it's when Arnold steps out of the biker bar, which I thought that biker bar scene was so cool when I was a kid because Arnold was such a badass. Yeah, uh, you know, he, he, he's <laughs> literally side note, just talk he talks about in the commentary that he literally fought with the editors. He had like two editors on his side. Mm-hmm about using bad to the bone yeah in that scene and that it was that like when he walked out and he was he was he was basically saying that he wanted that song and people were like what it's been used in a couple other things before this and like no it's probably not the thing he's like no no this is this is fun yeah (laughs) this is the fun fun. song that's that's what it is like he's like it is the rare opportunity in the commentary he was trying to describe like it's the rare opportunity the movie steps outside itself for just a minute that you mm-hmm. can appreciate that like here's the ultimate badass exactly yeah <laughs> and and that that's what i'm talking about like that george thorogood and the destroyers bad to the bone it's not a great song i think it's a pretty fucking stupid song but <laughs> <laughs> but it's this it, this like needle drop establishes that this movie's going to be a little bit more playful than Mm. the first film you know it's fun like arnold's a badass you know it's immediately apparent that this time cameron's allowing himself to have a little more fun whereas the first film as we discussed is more it's a it's a slasher movie Mm -hmm. this time it's an action movie it's a popcorn movie is what he's doing this time around and the first few sequences of this film like you've you've got the future sequence uh which is great uh, and then the Terminator's entrance, uh, both Terminator's entrance. But then you've got Arnold going into that biker bar. And when he steps out and you see the close-up of his like motorcycle boot, bat of the bone starts playing, you're like, all right, we're in for something different now. That's when you know. Yeah. You know? I, I got this quote from him. He said, uh, we shot and edited the film in under 13 months. It was an enormous grind. The first time I saw the film with an audience, the moment Arnold walks down the steps of the bar in his motorcycle outfit and it got the biggest reaction. And I thought, why are they reacting so strongly here? Because they got it. There's nothing cool. more I have to explain or do to make mm-hmm. this guy the baddest ass killer in the world. Yeah. If I could get that within the first three minutes, then all the other mayhem and feats of indestructibleness I put after this aren't going to get me any more of a reaction. This moment I created right here. At that point, I became convinced this movie is going to work. Yeah, he's absolutely right. I mean, that's his instincts kicking in because he knows what works with audiences, you know. Uh, So by 1991, Arnold was a full-fledged action star. I mean, thanks in a large part to his work on The Terminator. But in between The Terminator and Terminator 2, he had done movies like Commando, Predator, Total Recall, Kindergarten Cop, which I... 
a door, uh, it, which is, honestly, I don't know for sure, but it's probably the first Arnold movie I ever watched in the theater was Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> I still love that movie. I, th- I think it holds up really well. But with those films, he'd proven that he had, uh, especially with Kindergarten Cop, he'd proved that he had, he had some comedic chops and that he could deliver dialogue in a way that a lot of Hollywood insiders kind of doubted early on in his career, Yeah, uh, including on the Terminator. People thought he wouldn't be able to do it because he, he had this strong Austrian accent. Uh, but, you know, he proved that he was really good with dialogue. And by 1991, he was kind of the king of one-liners, you know, because of Commando and, and Raw Deal and like all, all these things, you know, yeah. and Cameron plays into that here like he gives him a lot of one-liners in this movie because he's playing into arnold's persona mm. i take a lot of shit for the stuff i get about vin diesel or like i love the rock or like i love these dudes and yeah they are the masculine like just you know man's man machismo guys. archetype yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but i also just appreciate and arnold's the og this is a guy who knows what he does and he does it perfectly. Mm-hmm. He yep. knows what the fuck Arnold Schwarzenegger does. Yeah. And, and there's just, I don't know, man. I, I respect well, that guy. We, like I think he's to... brilliant and he, he could try so much more. And it's not that he's too dumb to do something else, you know, like Hamlet or whatever. Arnold is incredibly intelligent. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's like, Arnold knows what Arnold does mm-hmm. and Arnold like he's he's prolific as far yeah. as like being an actor this guy is rich for a reason this guy like he made himself yeah I, I respect the hell out of Arnold Schwarzenegger and I think and, we even talked about folks like Jennifer Tilly back in our um, Wachowski series who she ended up like realizing, oh, that's that's the thing. They'll 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 keep cutting me checks if I keep doing this shtick over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah, it, it's a brilliant play. It's a yeah. really brilliant play. You know what you're good at. And yeah. Arnold's performance here alternates between the stoic killer from the first film and a sort of father figure for John Connor. Uh, John teaching the T800 about the basics of human emotion in this movie is like surprisingly sweet. You know, mm. uh, I, I actually saw one writer compare it to. The little girl showing Frankenstein's monster how to like throw flowers into the pond. Yeah, yeah. bro, get out of here! If you don't think <laughs> I know now why you cry, but it's something I could never do. Oh, go fuck yourself! If yeah, that hit you right. The it's a great, it's a great moment, and and it, on, like if you think about it too much, it doesn't make any sense because he like literally a scene before he asked what, what what's wrong with your eyes he says like i have detailed files on human anatomy like you know what te- fucking tear ducts are but he doesn't know the emotional part of that right right uh, <laughs> and you know we talked about on our abyss episode about the kind of optimism at the end of the abyss which threw people off at the time of its release uh, people didn't know because they were expecting another horror film i guess from james cameron uh, but cameron he does that here again to an even greater effect, I think uh, the final goodbye, which you're you're referring to, Gary, between John and the T800, is I think one of the most moving scenes that Cameron ever filmed. Right up there with like the resuscitation scene I talked about during the Abyss, or yeah. or the spoiler alert because you haven't seen it, Gary, but Jack's final scene in Titanic. Uh, <laughs> you've seen yeah, the I don't memes. Know what you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know she doesn't uh, let him on a raft or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, let's not forget that this is an action movie and one of the best fucking action movies that has 
ever existed. Uh, and like, I, I will, I will die on that Hill. Uh, maybe even, and maybe even the best action movie that has ever existed. This is like up there for me. Justin uh, coming in with the hot takes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a real hot take. Nobody, nobody has that. Up <laughs> but like nothing like this has been made before or since really. I mean, after this, you know, action movies changed because of this movie, yeah. you know, Game like changer, the, for sure. Yeah. And for all of the talk that uh, of CGI breakthroughs on this film, Cameron also still understands that even cutting edge effects need to be integrated with practical ones. Uh, yes. the, the CGI moments are incredible, but uh, even three decades later, you know, we're, we're 30 years on 30 plus years on, but the, and the, like the T 1000 bursting through the helicopter window and then reforming next to the pilot, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that still plays really well. I think it, it, it is surprising how good it still looks. Yeah. Uh, but I, but to me, I think nothing really compares to like the tractor trailer jumping, jumping into the flood canal, you know, off that bridge or even the hell or the, the, the motorcycle jumping, you know, sure. that, that stunt or the climactic chase, you know, yeah. that we talked about earlier where the helicopter flies under the overpass, seeing all that stuff done practically, like nothing compares to that. Nothing, that is, nothing will ever be like, yeah. let's see if we can almost kill someone. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like seeing somebody almost die on film. So, like I always think of when I think of stunts like that, like blow my mind, I always think of maniac cop, like that final death of, for maniac cop where, uh, the uh, the bus jump or the van jumps off the pier and the stuntman yeah. is like flipping out and you're like that well, fucking could have landed on that guy that guy's within inches of dying right and no 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 it's it, because it's hundred percent true we're like joking about it but again we we, we love stunt guys on this show and yeah. it, and mm-hmm. it's just because like these are people who literally like seriously literally are putting their lives on the line to for make our entertainment movie for right. our entertainment yeah yeah. And I also love that Cameron isn't allowed to, he isn't afraid to go back to his Roger Corman roots when it makes sense. You know, he, he will find a lo-fi way to get a shot if it's, if it needs to be done. I mean, there, I, I personally, and I know some people aren't like this, but I personally like when the seams show every now and then mm. on a movie, you know, mm-hmm. like in this movie, there are some, some of the uh, driving scenes where it's clearly like rear projection. Like they're not in a real car. They're on a set and there's rear projection behind them. But right. I like that because I don't know, it, it adds to the movie. I, I like seeing the, that movie magic or there's or some the, cool, there's some cool through lines. Like yeah. the, with the, I mean, we're going to get to avatar eventually, but that fucking avatar movie has a fucking mech suit battle yeah. at the end. yeah i don't know i just love that like from even the beginning from xenogenesis yeah yeah from xenogenesis yeah. but i also like that you know you can tell that this is a movie sometimes you know like e- even with all the cutting edge effects one one thing that i really think of is sarah's dream of like the nuclear annihilation which is yeah. clearly done in like miniatures uh, that scene, by the way, was done by the team of Robert and Dennis Skotak of Four Ward Productions. The Skotaks had previously won an Academy Award for visual effects on both Aliens and The Abyss, and they would also win one for Terminator 2. Uh, a year later, they were nominated for their work. They didn't win, but they were nominated for their work on Tim Burton's uh, Batman Returns. Uh, so to pull nice. off the scene in Terminator 2, 
They studied hours of nuclear test footage before building dozens of miniature buildings, then destroying their model using air mortars. It, it, this had done been done just a couple of years later, probably. It would have been almost definitely like entirely CGI. Oh, yeah. But there's something about the practical use of models, even when you can tell that they're miniatures, that adds a palpability to the scene. To Very me, much. That, that wouldn't be the same if it were all CGI. You know, yeah. I just, I love the look of that. I mean, they it looks fake. Yeah, but it doesn't look CGI fake. It's a different type of fake that works better for me. I don't know yeah. if that makes sense. But you met you you adjust you know a little bit of the film speed. You add in some good sound design, yeah. and it. I buy it. It's good. And that <laughs> yeah, scene, it looks good. And, and the there there of, were scientific letters of praise, by the way, from people that that nuclear explosion that Sarah Connor experienced very realistic. was very realistic. Well, that's because, like I said, they studied actual nuclear testing footage, you know. Uh, and, and then that final moment of Sarah burning away and just her skeleton holding on. That's just such an iconic oh. image. Uh, you know, it's so. Oh, cool. it's still still used in gifts to this. Day. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very meme worthy. <laughs> well, there's a there's a shot where like she's in the she's in the interrogation room, uh, watching the old video of one of her previous uh, mm-hmm. interviews, and she talks about the people blow apart like leaves. Mm-hmm. And I caught that this time. And then when it came to that scene, I was just like, That's "Let's what watch it." That's exactly what happens. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it what looks happens. just like it. <laughs> I mean, while we're talking about it, I guess we, we've got to talk. We, we've acknowledged her her performance a little bit, but Linda Hamilton is Sarah Connor in this movie. Uh, I, I mean, I remember watching this for the first time. And, and even when I was you know nine years old, like Hamilton's presence was. And I, I knew her from Beauty and the Beast. I, I, I was aware of that show at the time, but mm-hmm. her presence was striking in this. Yeah. Uh, she is an absolute badass. Like her, her entrance is one of the best character entrances in all of film. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, you see her doing pull-ups. You don't see her face. You just see like Cameron, uh, like focusing on like her biceps and her shoulders as she's doing her, her pushups. And then she turns around, she sweats soaked in her, her hairs in her face. And she's just got like these intense eyes. Like it is a great character entrance, but she's also yeah. like throughout the film, like she's wanted her to smack me around. I know. I just <laughs> want her to like, what are we just, what are we, just crush my head. <laughs> just step on me a little just, bit just step Sarah. on my neck <laughs> uh no this is getting really disturbing but <laughs> no no you know you know what though did stand out to me like i legitimately as much as many of the other iconic scenes and i'm glad you said that because this legitimately has always been a cemented memory in my brain is that fucking dude licking her face mm-hmm. yeah uh and oh. i've always been like when she fucking gets revenge it's on so that satisfying guy. yeah i've all that's always stood out to me even and you know from a when, kid where when she smacks like, what him with fucking creep yeah and when she smacks him with the the broken mop handle like you see pieces fly and i don't know if it's like his glasses or how they did that yeah does she actually smack him or like because they're they're not cging that that does they're not really doing like cg blood splatter and stuff like that at this time so every time i watch it i'm like holy shit did she actually like hit that guy i don't know i don't know she looks like she like (laughs) breaks his fucking face yeah Yeah. and he deserves it like and and if you watch the director's cut it's even more powerful because there's an earlier scene where he's like forcing her to take her medicine and he like hits her with the billy club in the stomach and stuff uh, so it's even worse in yeah. that. Uh, it's not like Rob Zombie's Halloween bad. Uh, <laughs> the mental right. Life, but, well, <laughs> nothing should be Rob. 
but also like the way that Linda Hamilton moves in this, she's so incredibly confident. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that due to her training with Uzi gal, but w- like one moment that's always struck, uh, that's always kind of stuck with me is after she beats up that, uh, that orderly and she takes his billy club and she's running down the hallway. And she kind of tucks that billy club under her arm. Yes. Yep. Like it looks like someone who knows what she's doing, yep. you know, like right. she is like such a badass, and every, Every time she handles a gun, like it does not feel like an actor doing it. It really feels like somebody who has years of experience doing this. Yeah. You know, Linda Hamilton owns that yeah. fucking role. But and and she also the, the great thing about it is that she's, you know, as badass as she is, she's not a terminator. Like she's still human. Uh, she's still a mother. That that scene in Miles Dyson's house where John comes and she, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but she says, like, you know. She's moved that he came to stop her from killing, you know, that's a great scene through and through, through all of her toughness, she never loses the fact that she's like, she's a mother, you know, like, like, and that she's a human, like, I was going to say that she's human. (laughs) And in that same scene, like with Miles Dyson, like she's trying to murder him and she can't do it. She becomes like this hyperventilating mess. You know, I, I think that she is really, uh, as much uh, attention as Arnold gets and things like that, like Sarah Connor's the heart of this movie. Uh, this is, a, I think, I think it was you, Gary, that mentioned this earlier on, but this is a movie about a Terminator learning what it's like to be human, but it's also about Sarah Connor learning to be human again. You know, mm-hmm. that's really what this movie is about. And that's, that's what James Cameron intended. You know, if you read his interviews and things where he's talking about what the themes of this movie might be, it's, that's what it is. It's like learning, you know, people are very easily turned into machines, like mindless, cruel machines. And this is about us regaining our humanity. Yeah. And hey, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, no. She, 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 and, and weirdly enough, I forgot about this, but it, they apparently did marry for like a brief minute. And yeah. uh, I thought they, were, they might have, I just, I had not looked it up. They divorced remember. in 99 is what I have here. I just saw that. So they notes. were married for years then 15 years. Wait, wow. that I have that, that in work. my notes and I totally forgot about it. That doesn't but, work. 1999. They just met. I mean, they just moved in together in 91. Uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. With the article I pulled that from, which was from the <laughs> New York Times. She said she had been celibate for 15 years. This is all weird. <laughs> That's a very different <laughs> conversation. <Yeah. laughs> it was about the, the, the New York Times article I was reading was about her coming back for Dark Fate. She had left Hollywood. Like she had yeah. kind of given up on Hollywood as she moved to New Orleans and she was living alone and like just doing her own thing. And uh, but she came back for Dark Fate. I that I haven't seen Dark Fate. But anyway, I now that's a rabbit hole of God. But apparently <laughs> yeah, they well, were, they were married. They were uh, married briefly. Yeah. But uh, no, I mentioned that like uh, that, that part of the thing with the John Connor thing that James Cameron was like super into was like, not only are you turning this killing machine, like a literal killing machine into a human, your human mother has become a killing machine or, and, because, but, or she's on, she is, on track to be on track to become one yes and and it's about john connor pulling her back uh to her her humanity basically yeah because you've seen like the fate of the whole world and yeah all of that and 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 yeah i love that i love that that like john connor doesn't have um 
you know, like like I mentioned before, he doesn't he can't explain specifically why you don't kill people. He's just like, I don't know if you've lived your whole life with your mom telling you you're the savior of all humanity, like you're the leader of humanity. I guess you logically conclude that killing hum- humans is a bad idea. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, so that's why he tells the Terminator, you just you just don't do that. You like, just don't do it because that that's just how it is. I mean, at, at the end of the day, and I, I don't think this is hyperbole to say so, I think this is one of the most perfect examples of blockbuster filmmaking mm. that has ever been made. It, it all, but And it almost feels like a crossroads of sorts. This is sort of the end of the era of those kind of gleefully nasty 80s action movies that Arnold had started in, like Commando, you know, stuff sure. that's really fun, but like, you know, a little more mean-spirited and definitely like more for a more niche crowd. And the beginning of the 90s era where action movies would become more approachable and family-friendly pieces of mass entertainment. Like the like Terminator 2 changed everything in, for, yeah, in forms of what action movies were and in, in, in regards to where what's what what special effects could do. Like Jurassic Park would not exist if it were not for Terminator 2. You know, uh, like this this movie is like if you're marking on the timeline of movie history, if you're marking like integral moments of filmmaking, Terminator Two is one of those. Yeah, like one of those one of those moments where everything changed. This is one of them. And yeah. then, of course, this inspired Jurassic Park, which are not inspired, but you know the, the special effects fueled what they did in Jurassic Park, and that, of course, even fueled how many other other changes in Hollywood. You know, you, you could put Star Wars, Jaws, you know, all these movies, but Terminator 2 is on that list. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that's a crazy thing to say. No, I think that's on yeah, that absolutely tracks. No, no, it's it's crazy like as we as we do these things to see all the connections and and like just how this all weaves into like a huge web of what Hollywood is. Like that's yeah. one of my favorite parts about this podcast and what we do is hearing all these connections from people but yeah they're they're obviously as much as i'd love to give terminator all the credit it's the same it's the same argument uh i I would make for like halloween as opposed to like black christmas it's like right as far as slasher movies like yeah maybe somebody's done something similar to this but halloween's the one who but halloween did it like that's that that's on the map that's halloween's the one that caught that that inspired the imitators not yeah. black christmas that's the checkpoint yep. and and the yeah it's like terminator 2 is is one of those checkpoints in movie history yeah that, like it just things changed because terminator 2 existed terminator exactly. 2 altered the the future of hollywood um and you and you can't change that despite what time traveling magic <laughs> you try to pull into well, guys, it's come to that point where we talk about the films that we would pair with this one. If we want, if somebody enjoyed Terminator Two, what would what else would we recommend to them to to to, to watch? What's our uh, further viewing for Terminator Two? We we've mentioned. I I think any Arnold movie is really the <laughs> yeah, answer yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Predator or uh, Total Recall or uh, I don't know. I mean, if you really want to, if you want to get fucking stupid, you can do like looper edge of tomorrow or something <laughs> get us some time travel bullshit but i mean technically edge of tomorrow is not really time travel but <laughs> it is he I dies mean, and he goes of, back and then... <laughs> not in the same way but 
whatever. <laughs> whatever. I mean, yeah, any any Arnold movie would be good. I mean, you could also do Terminator Three if you wanted to, or Terminator Dark Fate, or what you know, if you want to okay, see the return see, of Hamilton. With mine, I'm actually going to disagree with you, Justin. I think if anybody really wants something that goes perfectly with Terminator Two, and we usually do break away from from the franchise, Sequels. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I got to say, if you haven't seen the Sarah Connor Chronicles. You absolutely need to. I think the Sarah you, Connor Chronicles I, if, is the best follow up to, Termi- to Terminator. Yes. If you to enjoy, Terminator if you enjoy the world, and we spoke at great length you about the, the world, world that Jam that James Cameron, <laughs> you know, really built and expanded with these mm-hmm. first two movies. This is this is chapter three. And yeah, it's. It's good. It, you get to see some of those really fun details, you know, the things that that really make T1000 scary kind of come to the surface. You mm-hmm. see, you know, the the ramifications of Kyle Reese's involvement in the, you know, when he first came back and, you know, all those all of these things playing out and John Connor growing up. He's he's not in his 20s yet, but he's dangerously close to being this young man and uh you know sarah just desperate to protect him and it all just plays out and it was so good and i was so brokenhearted when it was uh yeah every part of your description right now makes me fucking pissed off like it makes me think (laughs) i'm gonna hate everything about it it's like it's so good none of this makes sense no it it is really outstanding it is uh it only ran for two seasons uh, Lena Headey from who probably is best known for, for, as Cersei from Game of Thrones. She plays Sarah Connor in it. Uh, Thomas Decker plays John Connor, who was in Heroes. I think was the only other thing I, I know him from. Mm-hmm. But uh, Summer Glau, who I love from Firefly and stuff, she she's in it. Uh, Brian Austin Green, I think, is in it if I remember yeah. right. Oh, yeah. so. <laughs> and and Garrett Dillahunt, who's one of my favorite character actors, plays a Terminator in it, and uh, he's like a T. 888 or something like that and uh, he's awesome and here the person who 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 really surprised me in that show shirley manson lead singer of garbage (laughs) is in it and she's 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 like a t8 she's like a t1000 type she's like a shape-shifting terminator and she's so good in it she's great it's a great show honestly i i was also very bummed when it got canceled because yeah like i said it's only like two seasons but um, it's worth checking out. I think. Thanks, I think Fox. Really, yeah, yeah. Fuck you, Fox. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would agree with you. I mean, that's you know, it's not exactly double feature because it's a thirty yeah. some odd episodes of a TV show. But right, yeah, it's an outstanding show. I think. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's the I, best I, continuation of the lore that we've gotten. Yeah, and to be honest, I I tried to think of something outside the franchise that really paired well with this, and mm-hmm. I nothing really was just like oh that's perfect right you know? right i mean like gary said aside it's tough. from aside from another arnold movie like sure. there's not really anything that stacks up to this i mean obviously like total recall and terminator 2 would be a great double feature like that'd sure. be a, that'd yeah, be a good course. night on the couch right yeah uh but what, what do you have gary other than do you have just just other than another terminator movie is that just where you're going I mean, yeah, I just Arnold think this movie. is like an Arnold thing. Like, Arnold I would night. say Arnold overpowers everything on this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I had a hard time coming up with something for this one, but I, 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 I kind of wish I hadn't like blown the load on 
Terminator 2 Shocking Dark, which I mentioned in our, our, uh, our Terminator episode. Because uh, right, right. I, I legitimately love that movie. Uh, and Lady Terminator, I legitimately love. But if I'm going to pick another one and sticking with the kind of low budget, like, you know, B-movie type. Cor- like Corman-esque. Those, yeah. I'm going to go Albert Pyun Cyborg starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh! Uh, 1989. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, it is not what I would call a good movie, but <laughs> it is what I would call a very fun movie. And and I, Albert Pyun, if you're not familiar with him, uh, he is kind of the king of these types of like low-budget uh B movies. He did the Captain America movie from the 80s. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Uh, you know, he did Nemesis. He did Charles Band's uh Doll Man, you know, like like a bunch of really dumb shit. <laughs> but <laughs> stuff that's like dumb, but also very, very fun. But Cyborg, and I think Cyborg has a couple sequels, though. I'm not sure that I've seen them. Yeah. Uh, but the original Cyborg is is pretty fun, you know, with Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> as, as a cyborg from the far future of the 21st century <laughs> <laughs> well i mean if we're gonna do all that i mean you can just go like universal soldier or yeah universal like soldier was actually another one that i considered honestly <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right well yeah. I'm, I'm with you there yeah that's but, fun i don't know don't give me a shitty TV show that got canceled. Time. Hey, hey, it's a on. good, it's a, it's a good TV show. It's a good canceled. one. Yeah. <laughs> well, Terminator two took home four Academy awards, uh, it won Academy awards for sound makeup, visual effects, and sound effects editing. Uh, we have had to date four additional sequels plus a television show, as Todd mentioned, uh, none of which I think have come close to holding up to Cameron's films, although uh, I would argue that the Sarah Connor Chronicles is the closest. Right. Uh, but the film's real legacy lies in the world of computer-generated effects. Uh, the strides that ILM made uh, that Cameron pushed them to make changed the world of filmmaking. Uh, Dennis Muren said, this is a, a quote from Dennis Muren, he said, and we, we kind of already talked about this, but this is coming from the horse's mouth. He said, T2 was the film that changed everything. And the work that ILM did on the film made their next big project possible. That film released two years after T2 was Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, a film that pushed the possibilities of CG beyond what anyone thought was possible. Uh, and then after directing uh, four science fiction movies in a row, each more difficult than the last it seems to film although it's you know, there's a toss-up between the difficulty of the, of the abyss and terminator 2 the difficulties on terminator 2 were probably just due to time constraints uh but cameron was kind of ready for a change on his next film he didn't want to do another big budget sci-fi movie that was going to you know take years of his life he thought you know maybe i'll do a character drama maybe i'll do a comedy well his next movie is a character drama and is a comedy, but it's yeah. also a James Cameron movie, which means it's also a movie where, you know, he lands a, a Harrier jet on the top of a fucking building. So, <laughs> uh, so that's the movie we're going to be talking about on our next episode of cinema shock, James Cameron's next and to date final team up with Arnold Schwarzenegger, 1994's true lies. Yeah. And I will go ahead and apologize if you're having a hard time finding true lies <laughs> because we, we talked about this off, off mic, but it is notoriously hard to find. Uh, the DVD is long out of print. There has never been a Blu-ray or 4k release. It is not streaming. So hopefully you've seen it. 
or hopefully you can go on eBay and buy you a copy of the DVD that's 20 years old, which is that was really weird. Like <laughs> I, I want us to dig in on why that might be because it's just because it's, James Cameron has approval on the the uh, on his home video releases and on the transfer and he's got other things on his mind like making a bunch of new avatar movies so that's well, really that's kind of garbage that these movies are out there and uh i don't know it, it's wild to me that there's not it's not at least streaming or something but you should at least have like the standard definition <laughs> streaming yeah. somewhere i mean jesus yeah like the movie is a i mean the abyss was that way too that yeah yeah but i just Gosh, I feel like, I mean, as far as my memory goes, True Lies was bigger than the... It was huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, I don't know. It's just weird. Uh, As far as the Terminator franchise goes, I guess, according to that New York Times article, I mean, he he had something to do with Dark Fate. I didn't know anything about that. He executive produced it, yeah. that's, That's the first Terminator movie, I think, since terminator 2 that he's had any direct involvement in but he was a an executive producer on that one he didn't i don't think he wrote it or anything tim miller the guy who did deadpool directed it but i saw um, i saw some stuff with wisher and him talking about you know like by the time terminator 3 was rolling around and some of that interview stuff uh and he he said like uh uh quote when i was in post on titanic i was approached on terminator 3 and i said i'm just not that i i mean i told the story <laughs> the uh he said that after part one too so. yeah he did <laughs> to my offer uh, enough money <laughs> yeah so i guess they just gotta find the way but uh now, now he doesn't need the money as much i guess wisher said that their goal was they they wrapped it with there was no uh quote there are no back back doors to, in this film uh we wrote this movie so that the fat lady sings which is you know that was from fangoria i guess in an interview he did but you know, I guess you, you say that and you'll find a way if the yeah. cash is right. But <laughs> right. <laughs> now he's at a point where he doesn't need that. So he can do whatever he wants. Uh, so anyway, True Lies is going to be our next episode. I hope you guys can find a copy of it. And watch along with us. Uh, maybe if you're listening to this, you know, episode a uh, couple years down the line and not listening to it right when it comes out, then that <laughs> will have been remedied and you'll be able to find a badass like 4K restoration of it. But uh, can I can I give props to to bill wisher by the way real yeah. quick to say that by but besides you know just the obvious props that terminator 2 and terminator and all that shit's good uh just that people tried in multiple interviews to ask him about what he thought about future terminator movies and he definitely in every one says i have a rule if my pen didn't go to paper about this movie, I don't have anything to say about it. <laughs> That's a good rule. Yeah. yeah. You don't have yeah. anything nice to say. Don't say anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> That's his version of that. <laughs> yeah i was like wow props to that guy he yeah. doesn't get himself into any shit no that's, a, that's the way to live your life right there <laughs> right. i like that yeah. <laughs> uh well that's it for this episode of cinema shock uh where can you gentlemen and i use the term loosely be found on the internet well it turns out your mom is loosely on everything <laughs> she does too so. <laughs> no. uh i bet this is gary horde uh, you can find me there or on Justice Mom's OnlyFans or uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. They, you know, I respect Justin and his family. So. Yeah, her birthday was yesterday to go show she's such a respect. What's wrong with me? <laughs> Where was he? Who do you think popped out of that cake, Justin? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, this yeah. is Gary Horn. 
This is Gary Horde. This is the NWA. No, this, this is, is pro this, wrestling. This is pro wrestling at NWA. All that stuff. You can find stuff. This I is do. pro wrestling's been going on pretty uh we're, pretty we're building we're building we're building up for a comeback i've got like yeah. six interviews in the bag like ready yeah. to go it's just six been six. like a slow like uh i filmed these like I've, I've taken all the lessons i've learned from cinema shock and these are like <laughs> multiple camera angle interviews nice. <laughs> and so Ooh. so I'm, editing is a whole thing yeah, well, that's awesome though, and and I've also noticed Gary that you've been pretty active on Letterboxd here lately. Well, stay tuned for next week for the uh, in between show, and uh, I'll tell you all about everything I've seen that yeah. I've documented on Letterboxd. Because yes, I try to make it a point to record everything in Letterboxd. Yeah, it's been it's been great. I I, I read your reviews, Gary, even if no they're up. terrible. I'm even not I'm not the best writer in the world or anything, but you know, I'm trying to be honest now. Yeah, you I, get you get you get your views across. How about you, Todd? Not well, using letterboxed. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I've got I'm I, that's on my list of things I need to improve. Uh but yes, I uh <laughs> it's a long if, list. Yeah, it's a very long list and getting longer <laughs> by the day. Uh if you enjoyed the, some of our uh Star Trek chat. Uh, earlier in this episode check out my podcast the computer resume podcast where we cover the entire star trek franchise in chronological order uh with you know a seemingly endless rotating panel of guests from comedians and actors and musicians and writers and uh DIYers. i'm sorry and podcast hosts yes and podcast hosts including uh just recently recorded an episode with mr justin bishop uh gary has been on the show well both gentlemen have both G gary and justin have both been on the show it makes sense times. now though why i got the text message the other day that uh the uh no skip function on the <laughs> intro <to laughs> yeah, discovery yeah. or not uh, discovery no, enterprise enterprise, enterprise. Was, uh, still mad about it <laughs> Uh, but you can find uh, the Computer Resume podcast at Computer Resume on all of the socials. Please, if you enjoy it, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Our Patreon page is up, is live. We actually have a supporter, so oh. we're gonna we're gonna do it one at a time. <laughs> if I have to well, go knocking on doors. <laughs> hey, you know we might have a Patreon for Cinema Shock one of these days too. Soon. We've got some ideas, absolutely. Yeah. And you can also find me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Discord, and D and D Beyond. Hey, <laughs> and I am at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can find the show at Cinema underscore Shock on twitter and instagram we're also on facebook we're also on discord uh go to cinemashock.net you can find all of our episodes all of our series you can find a link link to our discord you can find a link to our threadless shop where you can buy, buy your own cinema shock t-shirts and such uh until next time may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other no 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 you gotta listen to the way people talk you don't say affirmative or some shit like that. You say no problemo. And if someone comes on to you with an attitude, you say eat me. And if you really want to shine them on, it's Johnny has the keys. <laughs> your your voice, you, you didn't have quite enough prepubescent screech to your voice. It's because I'm a four-year-old man. My <laughs> balls say. touch the water, Justin. My <laughs> balls touch the water. I'm not going to be able to sound like Edward for a while. <laughs>
we're we're less at the age of like wanting our balls to drop to more of the age of like sometimes my testicles get wrapped up yeah. in my jazzy scooter. They, they need some <laughs> they need a bit of support. Well, based on what I did earlier in the show, let me try this one more time. Uh, uh no, 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 you gotta listen to the way people talk. You don't say affirmative or some shit like that or some shite like that. You say no problemo. <laughs> and if someone comes on to you with an attitude, you say eat me. And if you want to shine them on, it's Johnny has the keys. That's John O'Connor. Thank you. John, John O'Connor. O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs>